Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us. This is episode 114. Uh, we're recording this at 3 o'clock p.m. Pacific time on Sunday, February 21st, 2021. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, as always, Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Zach, what are you drinking this fine podcast? I'm drinking a fine Chianti. No, I don't know if it's a Chianti or not. Actually, I'm pretty sure it's not, but we can pretend it is for this podcast. And I don't have any livers with fava beans, but I wish I, I did. Well played. Nice. Well played. Todd, what do you got? Uh, bourbon. It's the Winchester Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, which is actually like really good stuff. So cheers, guys. Nice. Nice. Well, I, I'm going to one up Zach because I actually do have a Chianti. Um, we, so I, I got to throw shout out to my wife who, as soon as she heard our, our, uh, our deep dive topic of the week, she said, I got to find you a Chianti. And so she went on Amazon and, you know, they've got the grocery delivery from Whole Foods now. And she found, check this out. It is a Criterion Chianti. Wow. It's like that. There's know, nothing better. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah, that's like as Mind good as it blown. gets right there. It's as good it's as it gets. It was from 1991. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. No, 2018, but yeah, so I, I'm actually drinking a Chianti, so. I've never goes, I've never had a Chianti. I didn't even know that was the right pronunciation. I, I, I've never had it before. Is or it any Chianti? good? There's no way Anthony Hopkins was mispronouncing that word. <laughs> it's fairly sweet. Um. Yeah, so it says on the bottle here, hold on. Uh, so dry, complex, and balanced for the style. This is the profile. It's on the bottle. Uh, the aroma is red cherry, spice, and dried flowers. The flavor is red fruit, tobacco, and graphite material. Okay. And pair it with pork chops, red sauce, or mushroom risotto. Good to know. It's all that's almost as thorough as uh, Lecter's uh, description of Buffalo Bill in the FBI files. So that's <laughs> yeah, yeah, now up to date. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, make sure that you, if you are listening and you like uh, our podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, review. We are all over the place. We are on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher. Uh, you can find our website, almostsideways.com. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. Pretty much anywhere that there is uh, there is online stuff, you can find us. So, uh, yeah, check us out. Okay. Gee, Terry, I wonder what movie we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I, wonder I know. I if there's anyone who doesn't know yet. <laughs> hmm, we'll see. Uh, okay, so uh, before we get started here, Todd. I'm throwing it to you, uh, yeah. and uh, we, we had a chance to talk about this yesterday, and Zach's going to hear this for the first time, but you've been trying to figure out how to compare this year's Oscar race with other Oscar races in the past, and, and I think you've got a pretty good one here, so we're going to kind of work through this fairly quickly, but we're going to get some initial reactions, like immediate reactions here from Zach on what he thinks uh, about your uh, your work here, so go for it. 
Okay, so I mean, well, obviously now there's more than five Best Picture nominees. So, and I there's no perfect year for this year because it's a really wide open year and we don't really know what they're doing. So I decided to combine the two years that I had really good comparisons for. So 2004 and 2005, if they were together, then that's what you would equal for this year. And so I'll start going through. I have like maybe 15, 20 comparisons uh, that all fit, I think, pretty well. So first of all, Mank is the aviator, right? I think that fits. Yeah. I think that fits. The I think we said it was either, that or, movie. it was either that or Good Night yeah. and Good Luck. It was like, those were the two. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, an Oscar profile, yeah. I mean, yeah. it fits, it fits yeah. Avery pretty well. Uh, Promising yeah. Young Woman is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It would probably be okay. a Best Picture nominee in a 10-year race. Okay. Uh, the Father is Capote. Which yeah. there's a few there's a few options for the father, but Capote seems like the best one. Um, Nomadland, I think, is Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. The Five Bloods is pretty easily Munich. Yeah. Uh, one Night in Miami is Closer. Trial of Chicago Seven is of course Crash. Crash. Yep. Hillbilly Elegy is C- Cinderella Man. Obviously, the okay. one supporting nomination and Ron Howard. Uh, Mon Rainey's Black Bottom is Walk the Line. The the two lead nominations maybe want to win. Judas and the Black Messiah is uh, Syriana. I mean, the profile fits there pretty well, I think. Sound of Metal is Vera Drake, which is the one I don't I like the least. But their Sound of Metal is sort of an enigma. I really don't know what to think of it. But Vera Drake seems like it could be. How about like Maria Full of Grace? But I mean, I think it's getting more than just one nomination. That's that's the thing. I I don't maybe I mean it's not getting a director maybe. nomination, but uh, Minari is sideways. News of the world is the constant gardener. Uh, Palm Springs is match point. Tenet is King Kong. The prom is finding Neverland. I know Terry's gonna like that one. I, I hate that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way back is hustle and flow. The little things is obviously a history of violence. Uh, Pieces of a woman is North Country. And the problem is with this, I have no million dollar no baby. Million, yeah, so I, I kept waiting for where's million dollar baby? There, there is not. Like, the, I can't come up with anything that comes close to what million dollar baby's awards profile is. So it's combine 04 and 05, but take out million dollar baby. And Crash is the one that ends up winning it. <laughs> I, I think Crash would have beaten million dollar baby probably. <laughs> yeah, but Crash, I mean, Crash, it, it, had a, it had a big cast, but Trial of the Chicago 7 is a much more high profile movie than Crash ever was. Uh, that is that is true. Crash well, was oh, yeah. was the the independent darling of that year. Well, I mean, but I mean, like Chicago Seven was the uh, the first of the big Netflix Oscar players to come out. Crash came out in like what April or something. Something like I that. Mean, and yeah, the big Hollywood cast, the obvious like original screenplay winner, with uh, you know what the one supporting nomination, and it's probably I- gonna be best picture. Honestly, I think this this list reflects more about your prognostications than an actual similarity. Like, I because that that's that's the that's the lane for Chicago Seven. I don't believe Chicago Seven will win Best Picture, so I don't believe that. But I can understand in that scenario how those pieces match. So, what, would you have changed any of those? Well, see, I think I think Mank ha- is the best picture favorite, and I think there's a, a comparison with 2011 to to Mank, and you could oh sl- Mank and the artist, yeah, like Mank and, and the artist, like that. I think there's, and I think Nomadland. Well, we'll get into Nomadland maybe a little later in this episode. But I think Nomadland is Tree of Life, and I think 
Um, and there's probably a few more I, I can't remember, but I, that, I don't know. I, but there is no million dollar baby, basically. There's, there's no million dollar baby. But otherwise, it's it's an interesting, enlightening comparison. I mean, I suppose Minari could be million dollar baby in a way in, in terms of it's like really late release. Nobody's really seen it necessarily. And it could end up getting like two or three acting nominations. But that'd be the only, that'd be the closest thing. I think you were right to first say that there's no there's no direct correlation. I think what's striking about this year, unlike many other years, and maybe Todd, you'll disagree, but I feel like all four of the acting races are pretty wide open, and that is a, a rarity. I mean, last year at this point, now granted, obviously last year at this point the Oscars already happened, but you know, in January one of last year, we knew who was going to win all four of those awards, and I feel like that's been pretty consistent the last few years. Even when Olivia Coleman won, I mean, it was an upset, but everyone thought Glenn Close was going to win. I feel like they're more wide open this year than previous years. Well, yeah, well, and, and we'll, we'll we'll know next weekend when the Golden Globes happen with the first like real big award thing to drop. But I mean. And that could, I mean, that could change a lot of things. If there's like an upset, like if for like, say, you know, like say Riz Ahmed or something wins next weekend or something like that, or Vanessa Kirby, then we'll know that there's like a, there could be a, a someone else that emerges other than like the predetermined two or three that are, that we, we think that all have a chance at winning. But I don't think there's really more than that in any, any category, but the nominations are still wide open, I think, too. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, I, I think it's crazy that we're almost to the end of February and we have so many question marks because we haven't had a major awards award show yet. So we there's so many things and there is still two months of Oscar season. We're waiting till the end of April to finally crown a best picture winner. So, I mean, we're going to be talking about this for a while. I mean, the eligibility window hasn't closed yet. This is insane. Yeah, so, that's the weirdest part. And then, like, I was just thinking the other day, like, I don't know, maybe it's a stupid question, but like, are, is everyone really going to be wearing a mask there? Are they going to be trying to enforce social distancing at all? I mean, at this point, the assumption is everyone will be vaccinated at, you know, the auditorium, right? So like, how is it going to look like, I don't know, I, that, that's a fascinating question that not a lot of people are talking about, I feel like. Is there going to be a live ceremony or is it going to be like the Emmys where everyone's going to be at their houses? I don't, I, I don't know. I would think there would be some kind of live ceremony, but... I'm not sure. Like, why, I don't why even know what the Globes are doing. The Globes had a press conference one year, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they're doing. But... Well, they were forced to have a press conference. They they had no yeah. choice. That's what the Oscars would have been that year if the writer strike hadn't been solved. But it, it will be interesting, like you said. I mean, not by the time of our recording next week, but uh, but next weekend we will know more uh, once the Golden Globes happen. So uh, so it'll be interesting to see uh, how how the picture clarifies or maybe gets muddled even more after that for sure okay zach what'd you watch this week okay so um this week i watched the king of staten island a movie that todd has been bugging me about yes for a very long time i actually watched it within the last 48 hours have you seen it terry i have not i've not seen this one yet <sighs> i really want I, I get... need i need to i'm i I want to watch it very soon. Okay, I'll tr I'll try to avoid too many major plot points about it. Okay. Todd, wh what did you see in this movie? I mean, like, you had a, your number three movie of the year. So, first of all, that really clouded my ju judgment about it. I had really high expectations going into it. We, but we all love Apatow in this podcast. 
this movie was derivative of every single movie that's ever been made about the lazy slacker son with the mom and the, the stepdad figure comes in. It, it, it's all derivative from the great Santini, but we've also seen it in like Mr. Woodcock and Baby Boy and Cyrus. In fact, in Cyrus, Marissa Tomei played the exact same role that she played in this movie. Um, I like Pete Davidson. I liked him in uh, the, uh, 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 what was the other big movie? Time big, big, big Time Adolescence. Yeah, thank you. I think I like him more as a side character, though, because in this movie, um, it was really hard to try to associate with this guy who's just, he's just this privileged, spoiled baby who gets high all day and doesn't have any sort of responsibility. That's great as like a side character, right? Like he was in Big Time Adolescence. But in this movie, I didn't find any kind of emotional connection with him. So simultaneously, I understood where the Bill Burr character was coming from and being so vindictive toward him. Um, but at the same time, I didn't, I didn't feel any pushback. Uh, and I also thought Bill Burr was sort of a jerk too. Like I didn't understand how Marissa Tomei could be with... I mean, obviously, she has nurtured this this guy his entire life, so she's going to just accept the kind of verbal abuse that Bill Burr gives her beloved 24-year-old son. I didn't believe their relationship. There is a scene in this movie where there is a confrontation, and the confrontation takes place in someone's backyard, and there is a giant swimming pool. And I was like, let's set the watch right now. Let's let a T-minus 25 seconds until someone gets thrown in that swimming pool. Like, that is the laziest, most unoriginal writing I've ever seen in an Apatow movie. There's also this, um, this uh, crime that happens in the movie that happens at a really random place. It feels like it's out of another movie, and there's no follow-up to it. It's also like puzzling how the Pete Davidson character just is gets completely disconnected from it. Um, I also, the Maud Apatow character that is the sister, why is she inviting him to a party? She doesn't like him. She, she, she rejects him, right? So why is she bringing him to this party? It made no sense. That sequence was ruined. The only thing I liked about the movie, which is you know shameless sentimentality on my end, because I'm a sucker for things like this, is when the Pete Davidson character starts developing a relationship with Bill Burr's children. But I like Eladro Di Bambini. I like the stolen children. I like when hard-nosed, grizzled characters develop cute relationships with young kids. Um, so shameless uh, to me. That 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 was it was shameless sentimentality. I, I guess it got to me. I don't know why. What, you need to defend this movie. I give it two stars, a very very low two stars, in part because um, maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset. I could I could see being in a group setting in a theater watching this movie and enjoying it a whole lot more. As it was, uh, it all that I could see was how derivative it was from other better movies. So. Sorry, I'm I, I'm out. Sorry, man. I know Adam liked it too. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I reviewed it on the podcast and talked about it on my top ten thing. I don't know how much I have to really defend it. I, I don't know what you were saying about the Maud Apatow character. She she was forced to bring him to the party by her by her mom. So I don't. I mean, no, no, no. I'm talking about the the college party, not the party at the beginning of the movie. Oh well, okay. Well, I mean, that didn't make sense. She, she doesn't she doesn't like her brother. Why is she bringing him to a party? I don't know. I mean, like little things like that. It just it didn't add up with the character. And then the whole like last 45 minutes of this movie, which drag on and on and on, just like my review of this movie. So I'll shut up. But like it just doesn't end, man. Avatar and your freaking movies. That's always been his problem. And in this movie, it really it, it this movie was plotting at times. I know, I know we're, we're, we're we're completely different hemispheres. The real point of the of my rant here, Terry, watch this movie, solve this argument for us. I have a feeling you're going to side more with Todd, but 
I number three of the year, man. I mean, wow. That's all I have to say. I, res- I can tell you right now. It, but... I can tell you right now. It's, I'm probably going to give it a high three to low three and a half. Be right in between the two of you. <laughs> I mean, I, I saw it maybe five times. Like, it, this isn't just like some like snap opinion. Like, I, I mean, I, I love the movie and I, I love everything the Pete Davidson character goes through. I don't think he's likable. Bill Burr's not likable, and that's not a problem. They're just the main. They're just the main people. Yeah, you wouldn't call that swimming pool scene writing one yeah but it also had like the funniest like line in the whole movie what does this have to do with staten island by the way this this could have been the king of you know provo utah like there's also no sense of place in this movie it's like totally arbitrary like i don't know like all of his all of his buddies like they they define staten island like that's that's the whole thing when they're like out hanging out and stuff like that's that's their whole I hate the buddies. It just reminded me of 40 year old virgin. Like, come on. That was better. Crisper writing. Like, give me that movie any day over this. <sighs> All right, man. Yep. Sorry. I'll. Yep. <laughs> Mad props, though. <laughs> we can agree about big time adolescence. And I think Pete Davidson is talented. I think the guy has talent. This just wasn't the, wasn't the right movie for him. All right. Well, I'm sorry. That took way too long. At the... <laughs> but I needed to bring it up. I had pa- I had baggage here. Rant over. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, I need to see that one then. All right, I'm gonna go next, and it's time it's time for your quiz of the of the week. So uh, for my Oscar watch, we're going back 20 years to 2001. This got a sole cinematography nomination for Roger Deakins. The man who wasn't there. Yeah, a man who good. wasn't there. Yes. Yeah, that's that's what I watched. So uh, let's talk about The Man Who Wasn't There. This was uh, written and directed by the Coen brothers, starring Billy Bob Thornton, Francis McDormand, uh, Michael Badalucco, James Gandolfini, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Richard Jenkins, Tony Shalhoub. I mean, it's a, it's a great cast because it's a Coen brothers movie, so it's a great cast. Uh, and it is a definite, like, throwback noir uh, in a lot of ways, um, the the most uh, like throwback of really any Coen Brothers movie I think I've seen, um, and the cinematography is great. It's it's black and white cinematography, but what they do with Billy Bob in this is really is really awesome. Anyway, so Billy Bob Thornton plays uh, a barber who uh, is just kind of always he he's just this quiet guy, just kind of goes about his life. He's married to Frances McDormand. And uh, is um, finds out that she is having an affair with her boss, James Gandolfini. Uh, there's a and there is a uh, a confrontation there, uh, and a lot of kind of random situations happen that lead to lead to some crime. Uh, it is it's a fascinating movie. I was really into it. I feel like the end kind of ruined a lot of it because the end goes. A little sideways like a lot of coen brothers movies do um but it it didn't need to this time like it it could have stayed stayed kind of stayed the course and just been awesome in what it was doing but instead it had to try and 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 be a strange coen brothers movie um billy bob is awesome in this movie i thought he he gave one of his better performances um and uh yeah i'm giving it three stars it, it's a solid watch it's one of my coen brothers blind spots that i now get to fill in 
Uh, what was nice about this one is this is one of the movies that was just hanging out on my movie shelf that I hadn't watched yet. So I had the DVD already. It was easy to find. Uh, but yeah, The Man Who Wasn't There, if you haven't checked it out, I mean, it's kind of a forgotten Coen Brothers movie, I feel. but it, So if you haven't checked it out, it's uh, it's worth finding and worth watching. Have you guys seen this one? Yeah. It's yeah. Been, been 20 years, saw it in a theater. <laughs> I only remember two things about it. I remember that he's a barber, and I remember that at some point someone mentions Eugene, Oregon. In the yeah. dialogue. I don't remember how or why. Those are the only things I remember about it. But I remember digging it at the time. I'm trying to remember how that happened too, but I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. But I remember, yeah, Eugene Oregon did come up. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it. I have it ranked as my 17th best movie of 2001. So that uh-huh. I guess technically Billy Bob has three of my top 17 of 2001. I guess he had a monster year that year. He had a monster's <laughs> ball that year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nice. I, I was I was gonna go there, but I, I I left it for you. I left it for you. All right, Todd, take us into the cager. All right. So th- there's some animated movies I have to knock off. This one's like half animated. So it's uh, G Force from 2009, directed by Hoyt oh. Yeatman, who is the Oscar-winning visual effects coordinator of The Abyss in 1989, which I, is kind of interesting. This is about a family of rodents. Uh, who are like the secret task force. I don't know that the plot really matters all that much, but it's uh, it's about the, the, the government shuts them down, basically, and then they put them in a pet shop. So the group has to escape and then stop some guy from developing like something that is going to help him take over the world. It's a Disney and Bruckheimer co-production, which I think is bizarre. Uh, and uh, it's basically Mission Impossible with uh, guinea pigs. And Nicolas Cage plays the star-nosed mole, which kind of i don't know it kind of looks like he has this like just giant bug resting on his nose all the time moving around and you can't really hear his voice because uh i don't know it's all nasally and like once again i want to see how he recorded this i I could just imagine like the face he's making while he's while he's uh making this voice but supposedly he didn't want to play guinea pig so he decided to use what he calls his stress voice uh which is like he says an octave or two higher so he can play this mole and the mole he says is acceptable because of the way they look, you know, they have a personality, they have an opinion, they're not just some cute domesticated little furball. And uh, plus, Jer- Jerry asked him to do it. So, I mean, I, I Nichols Cage is one of a kind. Nobody puts that much thought into their stupid voice work. Um, this movie, I mean, it has it has a flair of the like animation meets like action kind of thing without like Alvin and the Chipmunks, but it's which I mean, it's it's not as cool as like Roger Rabbit or anything like. The voice cast is impressive. I don't know how they how much they actually got paid to be in this because it's kind of trash. Like there's Sam Rockwell, Penelope Cruz, John Favreau, Tracy Morgan, and Steve Buscemi. And the live action parts are people that have like really interesting like voices, like Will Arnett, Bill Nye, and Zach Galifianakis. Like why why are those the 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 like the the, the faces you see? Those should be the animated characters. I honestly got kind of bored by it, and I don't know. There's too much going on. There's too much action. The eventual twists are kind of cool. Uh, but it's completely ridiculous. It seems like the kind of movie that would spawn like three really bad sequels, but it only made like 120 million on a 150 million dollar budget somehow. Like, but it, it, I'm surprised it doesn't have like this resurgence on Disney Plus because it fits the profile of like Planes or like Minions or something. These like really bad like kids movies that uh, that are are really super popular. So I'm giving it one and a half stars, which puts it number 75 on the cager between USS Indianapolis Men of Courage and Amos and Andrew. To give you some perspective on, on another where Amos and Andrew shout out. Place. So, what's Cage's best animated movie then? Uh, I mean, I guess technically right now it's probably. I mean, from what I've seen, probably the Ant Bully, but I, I haven't seen the Crudes movies. 
I mean, I the one just came out, so. Well, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Oh, yes. oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, there you go. I mean, that's the easy choice. I forgot about yeah. that. I mean, but yeah, it's a it's a movie he's in. But I don't know if you could call it a Nicolas Cage movie. Well, this isn't really a Nicolas Cage movie either. Like he's yeah. like the side character, and then he uh, sort of comes back into the fray <laughs> later in the movie. But he's entertaining to listen to, even though it doesn't sound anything like him. <laughs> All right. Well, there we go. So there's some uh, there's some movies for you to for you to be checking out now. Let's get into our featured review. And for that, we go to a movie that just came out on Hulu this weekend. It is one of the frontrunners for Best Picture. We've mentioned it several times when we were talking about our uh, our Oscar uh, prognostication and comparisons a little bit ago. And that is Nomadland. My mom said that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. My husband worked at the USG mine in Empire. I was a substitute teacher. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. Nomadland is a movie directed by Chloe Zhao, written by Chloe Zhao, based on a book by Jessica Bruder. Uh, and it stars Francis McDormand. And I'm going to start out on this one. Talk about what Nomadland is all about here. So Nomadland, uh, like I said, stars Francis McDormand as uh, as this woman who kind of lost everything uh, coming out of the uh, Great Recession of the uh, of the like end of the 2000s, beginning of the 2010s, and she decides to uh, live a nomadic life uh, in her van, uh, kind of working her way through uh, the western half of the United States. Um, going around to different seasonal jobs in uh, in the area, getting money here and there. And the movie is really just that. It's her it's her and her travels and the people that she interacts with along the way. Um, and her dealing with kind of the, the trauma of what happened of how she had to leave and why she's kind of living this life. Um, she says at one point she's not homeless, she's houseless. There is a difference. And I think that that's kind of sums up the movie in a really great way. Um, I think, uh, I, I think this, this movie is amazing. It, it, it is, a, a borderline masterpiece here. Chloe Zhao shows that she's got, um, she's got th this ability to make a movie that nobody else is making right now. Um, she made it with the writer of just this very simple, uh, slice of life thing with these very real people. And now she's able, now that she made that, she's able to do it and get a little bit of star power in there and make a very similar movie. And so um, th this is like if the writer had an established one of the best actresses we have working now at the front of it. That's what Nomadland is. Um, the, the direction, the cinematography is gorgeous throughout the throughout the entire thing. This is this is an amazing performance by Frances McDormand, partially because it's so different than any of her performances, I guess the closest you could come to is, is maybe three billboards, but it's so much more reserved and constrained. Um, I, I, I don't think this is her best performance, but I might say this might be her highest war performance because I, I don't know if anybody else could have pulled off uh, this role quite the way that Francis McDormand did. Um, it, it was, I, I was completely blown away by it. Uh, that, and, uh, and yeah, 
I, I loved I loved it. I loved so much of it. So this is a four star movie for me. This is a 2020 movie that we just got um, access to now. Uh, it, it's cracking my top five of of my 2020 of uh, my 2020 films. So uh, that's my thoughts on it. Just a brilliant movie here. Uh, we're gonna go to Todd next. Okay, so I. I like the movie a lot too. I, I feel like it's like sort of has that like micro budget Van Sant Soderbergh kind of feel, but it has like the beauty and style that Chloe Jean, like minimalism. And it's just refreshing to see a movie that is sweeping all the awards without, and then getting maybe going to get best director when it's not at all like a normal best director winner. This would be like if sideways beat million dollar baby for best director. It's, I mean, it's not flashy. Everything is underplayed, but it, but it's gorgeous. And, the movie it's like really quiet and meditative like the Darden brothers come to mind with how delicate and quiet it is and like uh while they're still exploring dark themes and it's almost poetic in the cinematography and the music which evidently isn't original but it's some of the best like uses of music i saw in any movie that was released in 2020. it's like a less intense like leave no trace almost or like a less plot driven into the wild but since we have like oscar royalty as the lead it's getting all the accolades which i don't have a problem with that it's uh, it's difficult to really understand Fern's plight. I feel like like you can relate to her, but you can't really understand why she's exactly living the way she is when she doesn't really have to. And maybe that's the point. Like, uh, it's like it's a study of this like cross section of people who, like, uh, are completely overlooked by other people and by like governments. And because McDormand is not like Meryl Streep or or like Susan Sarandon or somebody who would have completely played it up, we believe in Fern. And even though we don't really necessarily have to get her because she's just so convincing and lived in in that role. And especially in a world of like non-actors and sometimes she even lets those non-actors like upstage her in uh, emotional scenes, which I think is awesome because she's so subtle and, and, and brilliant. And I want to see the movie again because I can't fully sign off on being like this like gushing of support best picture movie, but I can really appreciate it. And I think it could be a classic the more like uh, a familiar I get with the like the supporting players in the movie it's almost like a, a narrative version of like vernon florida or something like that but i'm giving it three and a half stars it's a i i love the movie too all right good good all right zach what are your thoughts yeah we're thrice approved on this one um good i know terry did you ever see the rider i can't remember yes i did okay so i know well i had the rider pretty high on my what was a 2017 list um loved it this movie would also make my 2020 list i don't know exactly where it would be uh but it's a four-star movie and for all the reasons that that you guys both mentioned i guess a couple things that i would add is like there's several points in this movie where you start thinking that okay well we've seen movies like this before we've seen easy rider we've seen lost in america even the french movie vagabond uh, the agnes vardo film i thought a lot about while watching this movie and in each of those movies um for one thing those are all about protagonists who are able to travel the country because they're kind of bored with their lives. I mean, they kind of, to some degree or, or another, have midlife crises. Not so much the character in Vagabond, but certainly Lost in America and Easy Rider, and even Into the Wild, in a sense. I mean, that that the the Emil Hirsch character in that movie is really privileged, and he's a college student, he has affluent parents, and all that. It, what I find fascinating about this movie is that you know Francis McDormand be, is forced to be to adopt this nomadic lifestyle because of the financial toll that. Her life has taken as a result of you know this town that she lives in shutting down. And it's the same the same uh, thing with all those other castoffs in that Arizona ranch that they're at. Um, it's sort of like a complete inversion of what we typically see in these kind of frontier modern frontier movies about the American landscape. Um, 
another thing that I just loved about this movie is that, you know, I kept holding my breath. I, I was wondering when we would start getting those kind of Oscar Beatty moments. Like, you know, there's a part in this movie where, you know, she her her van breaks down and we start thinking, OK, well, here comes the moment when she's going to have to start panhandling for money or hitchhiking. We see her destitute on the street and she's about to die and she's sleeping on a park bench. But this movie doesn't ever do that. There's also, you know, a, 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 a dynamic between her and the David Strathair and the character. Where we think there might be some kind of romantic relationship that develops. But the movie does. But the movie always kind of sidetraps those sort of conventional Hollywood uh, routes, those conventions that we're, we're used to seeing so much in, in lesser movies. Um, even, th even the scene with, with Fern's sister, who doesn't fully approve of her lifestyle, I think is handled in a way that's really unique and not quite in a way I've ever seen done in, an, in another movie before. Um, you're right, this movie does have incredible landscapes. I thought a lot about Terrence Malick watching this movie with the really narrow um, uh, lens. Um, it feels like, you know, it's always on the Z axis and the camera's always mobile. And some of those shots like in the Redwoods are just amazing. It's a, it's a tragedy that this movie wasn't, won't be really seen on the big screen anywhere. Um, Francis McDormand uh, is amazing in this movie. I, I, I can't, the writer kind of did this convention where it like blended um, real people and they kind of keep their names. It's the same with this movie. And even kind of at the beginning, you could almost mistake it for Francis McDormand playing herself in this movie. Her name is Fern. Um, the performances, I guess, I don't even know if you call them performances, but like Swanky and Linda May and Bob Wells are like fascinating real life people. And you know, I just, I dig that stuff up. I mean, those, those performances, those scenes are so much more natural and so much more real than any anything scripted um, you could possibly see, and it's because they look like real people and they talk like real people, and th th that's the kind of movies. Uh, th 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 that's the kind of um, scenes and characters that I crave in movies, and we don't get nearly enough of. I love that this movie is contemplative. I love that it's slow, and I love that it makes you kind of pause and reflect almost on your own life um, in a way. And um, and I also love that she's not a victim. She's not just some passive. Uh, you know, the victim of circumstance, circumstances out of her control. Like, I love that she's in control all the time. And she has a really, up, I don't know if we call it an upbeat attitude, but her attitude is not one of being passive or someone that something terrible has happened to. Um, like Todd was kind of saying, like, it's sort of, it's, it's a choice that she chooses to live this way. And it's not necessarily that we watch the movie and weep for her. You know, we, we can understand the, uh, I guess, the appeal of, of the way that she lives. So I think it's a really complex movie. I think it's a movie that will probably be misunderstood by a lot of audiences. I think it's also a movie very much about grief. And then I, I think we need to talk about what are the real chances that this movie wins Best Picture. I think it is way too artsy and goes way too above the head of most Oscar voters. And unfortunately, we've seen so-called you know Best Picture front runners in the last few years like Boyhood and Roma also kind of just go over Oscar voters' heads. I get the sense that because there's no scene where she breaks down and cries and talks about the end of the American dream and how her husband is dead, um, there's no Oscar moments like that. I think it, it will go past a lot of Oscar voters' heads, which is unfortunate. But, you know, a lot of the best movies this decade didn't win Best Picture, so. Yeah, I don't think it's winning Best Picture, but I think I still think it has a really good chance of Best Director, which I think is even weirder because it's not a real flashy Best Director winner. Like, that's what all of the ones, you know, since they switched the voting with the Best Picture, like, it's split all the time because the flashy one's getting Best Director and the more grounded movie's getting Best Picture. But I, I still don't think this feels like a Best Picture winner, if that's a good thing or not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean... I think Roma is a good comparison in in kind of where it sits right now because Roma swept through all of the critics stuff, and uh, and heading into the major awards, it was it was the one that everyone was was looking at, and it still got the director win, 
but yeah, it turned out to just be a little too a little too artsy for um and maybe unapproachable um for the for the Hollywood elite that are voting on the Oscars to to uh to reach. And I mean that that's one of the things I've heard about it too, is it's it's gonna be hard to it's not as relatable as some of the other films. So well if it's not as relatable then people aren't paying attention to what's going on. I had to drive through Portland today. Um living a nomadic life and not and being houseless is a very relatable thing going on right now. And uh, and if people think this isn't a relatable movie to what's happening in the world right now, they're blind and they're not paying attention. Uh, so uh, I think that that's a huge part of it. And I thought that was that was a fascinating thing. I mean, I watched the movie this morning and then I drove through Portland today and, and I couldn't help but think about this movie as I did, because there are people everywhere just living on living on the streets because that's what they got. Yeah, and the movie never delves into poverty porn, and it doesn't have those grand sweeping statements about, you know, this is life in America um, in the 2010s. Um, and I think, I, I feel like, especially for older voters, that's kind of what they want. They want more heavy-handed sort of stuff. Um, and I think younger voters may also feel alienated by this movie because it is mostly about older characters and economic circumstances that they're not maybe familiar with. It's also not a particularly diverse or inclusive movie. So I feel like because based on the way that the Oscar voting system works, the contrived method it works, it may have a lot of people who like it, but maybe no one who loves it. That may be enough for it to win Best Picture, but I don't know if it's going to have like significant you know, defenders who absolutely love the movie. We love Parasite on this podcast. It was one of the great moments of the Oscars of the 20, last 20 years. But Parasite made a very clear, very clear points throughout um, about socioeconomic inequality. And they had big speeches and big moments of drama and heightened tension. And this movie just isn't like that at all. Another comparison is like the Florida Project, you know, another movie that I know Todd had predicted was going to be a best picture, real best picture contender, but also a movie that was about socioeconomic inequality, but didn't always address it in a really didactic way um, with heavy handed speeches or anything like that. And it, it was just too, it was too sophisticated for Oscar voters. I know, but even that, it wasn't sweeping all the uh, critic awards like, like this is like, I mean, yeah. like, I, like I said, I, I feel like it has a lot in common with Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace was more like had thrills because I mean, similarly, you don't really necessarily understand the main character. But I mean, that movie's completely forgotten because nobody cares it was Ben Foster. But this is Francis McDormand, so everyone really is paying attention. And it, I mean, and since nobody's seeing things on the big screen anyway, everyone is sort of like coming back to the same middle of like, yeah, this is a great movie. And it's kind of hard to deny. Yeah, well, and we'll know more in the next couple of weeks, but what do you guys think about her chances for Best Actress? I would put Carrie Mulligan above her at this point, but I don't know, I'm curious what you guys think. I still feel like we know nothing about Best Actress. There's four people that could yeah. win, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I still, like, I'm still standing by what I said earlier when we review Pieces of Women. I think Vanessa Kirby's winning Best Actress. That's the kind of role that wins Best Actress and Best Actor nowadays, but, I mean, we don't, won't know that until after the Golden Globes. See, and I would say Viola Davis is a front runner. so. There we go. I, I we we can all we can all hit. But you I'd be totally fine in. if Frances McDormand wins her third Oscar. Then cool. Like I, I mean, I have no problem with that. She's one of the like the most beloved people in all of Hollywood. So, and does it in such a different way too. I mean, Meryl Streep is beloved and gets all the notoriety because she she gets a lot of great roles that she can just sink her teeth into. Frances McDormand doesn't work a whole lot anymore, and and she waits for those really perfect roles for her. And uh, and so I think uh, I think because of that, she hasn't gotten the notoriety, uh, but she is one of our one of the best working act actors, men, man or woman out there today. And I, I think that's a uh, Florida Project was a really good comparison, too, 
uh, because I feel like if Florida Project had come out this year, it, it would have the same like like persona as Nomadland going into going into this race. Um, but I also think you you had Kelsey's a great point. Like movies about kids, though. Yeah, that's true. But I, th- I think you had a good point too that you know Francis McDormand is in this, so it's getting a little more notoriety. But also, I think uh, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people saw the writer uh, and and liked it after the fact, after everything had happened. And then Chloe Zhao has a profile now because later this year she's coming out with a Marvel movie, and I am fascinated to see what someone with this level of skill of minimalism does with a blockbuster marvel film i i am fascinated to see how those two uh styles mesh in that movie that's coming out the eternals well if uh she's doing that job so she could finance uh this movie then i guess uh it was worth it right man the way she makes her movies though one marvel movie can make her about 150 of these movies that'd be nice uh zach i don't think you ever gave a gave your star rating for this oh i'd I'd give it four stars and uh, I would also, like, do you think there was a more, a better, like, war performance this year than Francis McDormand? I, going back to what you were saying, Terry, I don't, I couldn't see anyone else playing this role. Yeah, I, I, that, that's, that's where I was at, too. I, I think, yeah, like you said, I, I think it might be the highest war of the year. Well, I mean, I said, I said that Pete Davidson gave the best performance of the year, and I still stand by that. But, I mean, Paul Racy, <laughs> I don't know that anyone else is doing that role. That's a good yeah, point that's, too. That's, maybe, yeah, maybe Francis McDormand the best, the highest war for a lead performance. Paul Racy best for supporting, potentially. All right, but we have we have two given at four stars, one three and a half. It is thrice approved. Uh, check it out. It is on Hulu now. It is also in some theaters. If theaters are open near you, if you can, are able to get there, uh, this would be a great one to to see on the big screen because of of how how gorgeous the cinematography is in this. So. Uh, Check it out if you can. Okay. Great. Well, now let's get into uh, our, our deep dive here uh, that we do every, every other episode. We, uh, we go uh, way too geeked out on one movie for hour to an hour and a half, and it is a blast doing it. Uh, we usually celebrate, uh, celebrate anniversaries in how we do this, and today we are celebrating... I think a pretty significant one, and a, a especially considering everything that's going on, uh, and that is we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Silence of the Lambs. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, she'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. And I find this, this is a great time to be doing this because uh, 30 years ago, just last week, Silence of the Lambs was released. Uh, I think the day we recorded our last podcast was the 30th anniversary. Um, and it stars Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. Jodie Foster has a movie in the middle of awards race right now in the Mauritanian. Anthony Hopkins has a movie in the middle of the awards race in, uh, in The Father. Uh, there is a brand new spin-off TV show that just started on CBS called Clarice. I mean, this is this is like definitely a perfect time to be talking about the Silence of the Lambs and its brilliance. So we're going to be uh, starting this off. Zach has some trivia for us that we're starting off with. So, Zach. All right. Well, uh, 
just uh, you know, the normal normal trivia. By the way, any any time is good to talk about Sounds of the Lambs. I mean, let's be honest; it's such a great movie. You could talk about it anytime you want. Um, but we're going to start with uh, Terry this time for uh, trivia. So if Todd could log off, and we'll come back to him in a little bit. Okay. Really, Terry, this King Staten Island was shockingly bad. <laughs> I, I just, I, there's no other way of putting it. Okay, so I have ten questions today. And I don't know how many points they're worth. I think somewhere around you know, 14 or 15. I'll count as, as we go along. Okay. Um, all right. So the first question is, who sang the song Goodbye Horses, a.k.a. the Buffalo Bill theme song? Oh, gosh. Um, the Spin Doctors. I don't know. No, the answer is Q Lazarus. Yeah, I was not kidding. <laughs> Okay, uh, what do the four billboards at the Quantico training course say? Gosh. Um... If you get it somewhere close, I'll give you credit. I'm having trouble even picturing them. Um... Nope, not nothing. I got okay. nothing. They say hurt, agony, pain, and love it. Um, okay. What grade did Crawford give to Clarice on her paper when she was his student at UVA? A minus. That is correct. <laughs> um, what is unspeakably ugly to Hannibal? Um, he tells Clarice this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say what Miggs did, but that that's not the answer. No, it's it's one word. It's one one word. Um. Dishonesty? Discourtesy. Oh! Yeah, the right first three letters, but uh, not quite. <laughs> um, what size is Catherine Martin? 14. That's correct. Uh, what is the name of the bug? Um, and uh, you can give the scientific name for extra credit, but I will also accept just the regular name. It's the, um, the was it the Doomsday Moth? No, it is the death's head moth, death's otherwise head. known as the Echorontius styx. Okay, I'm what doing, I'm doing terrible. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, name what is the name of the island that the inmates at the VA hospital in Oneida, New York, get to go to one week out of the year? It's like Goosehead Island or something like that. No, it is Plum Island. Yeah, it was not. No. <laughs> name, I, had to, I, had, I had to watch this movie very early on in the week so it's been a little it, it, ooh. It, yeah usually right. i like to watch these like within 24 hours of us talking about them yeah it's a good idea name one of the three major centers in the united states for transsexual surgery one of them yeah is it is it a it, city or an institution there there are three institutions that according to hannibal lecter specialize in transsexual surgery, what he or calls one of them is in Chicago. I think. No, then I don't know. <laughs> Johns Hopkins, the University of Minnesota, and Columbus Medical Center. Where, oh, yeah. where does Federica Bimmel hide her naughty pictures? Did you watch this movie? Yeah, we're not, yeah, yeah, we're not yeah, doing yeah, Red yeah. Dragon. <laughs> um. Oh. Like in the record player, something like that. 
Uh, okay, I'll give you a half point for that because you're going to need it. It is uh, her music box. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. And then the last question, what is the pseudonym that Jane Gum gives Clarice when they meet? Oh, 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 oh. Um, um. Mm. It's like Will Gordon. Uh, Jack Gordon. Jack, Jack Gordon. Maybe half credit for that, too. So you have a total of three points out of ten. Not your finest showing, but uh, maybe those questions were a little too difficult. I, I just, uh, yeah. Good luck, Todd. You look like I, you're I in pain. I, I was in pain. I was in pain. <laughs> hey, we flipped spots. Yeah. yeah. I, I, wow. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I can fix this. Oh, there we go. Oh, there we go. Okay. So uh, there were 10 questions in this worth 10 points, and Terry has three points. Okay. So, but, they're, but apparently they're very tough questions, so uh, we'll see how you do. That's what we're going with. All right. Uh, who sang the song Goodbye Horses, a.k.a. the Buffalo Bill theme song? Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Am I, supposed to, am I supposed to know that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, okay. ha I have I have a take about that song later in this episode, but uh, it was uh, sang by Q Lazarus. Um, right. What do the four billboards at the Quantico training course say at the beginning of the movie? The oh, like the things that are stapled on the tree. Yeah. Oh, it's like pain, hurt. Agony. It's, I don't know. <laughs> Something else. Okay, I'll give you half credit for that because you got you got a few of them. Hurt, agony, pain, love it. Wait, so how is there ten points if there's ten questions? That was worth one, one point. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what grade did Jack Crawford give Clarice on her paper when she was his student at UVA? Uh, he actually gave her an A minus. Correct. Uh, what is unspeakably ugly to Hannibal? And he uh, told Clarice this. What Migs did? No, it's one word. That's what I said. Uh, that is funny. That is what you said. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know. He's talking really fast. I guess. And it's I also noticed, like, neither DVD I have has subtitles available so i don't know <laughs> i have no idea what he actually says in that whole thing <laughs> i just want to go back for a second it is really funny how oftentimes we'll have the exact same incorrect answers how, how frequent <laughs> yeah. that that occurs um but anyway the correct answer is discourtesy um oh, that sort of discourtesy is that what he says yeah and i guess it is sort of a, a quick line but i don't know i, I, I mean, feel like did, that did line you guys get subtitles on this <laughs> my, my dvds neither one has subtitles i have the blu-ray does it have subtitles? I don't know. I didn't check. Okay. <laughs> Why do you need subtitles? This movie's in because English. I couldn't understand what he was saying in the in situations like that, or do I you, can't understand what Buffalo Bill's saying sometimes. Really? I do you do you frequently turn on subtitles when I can't understand something? Yeah. If I can't understand it when I rewind it and, and listen to it again, then yeah, I'll turn on the subtitles to see what they actually said. Hmm, that's 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 interesting. <laughs> All right. Anyway, nice tangent. Um, okay. what size is Catherine Martin? A 14. That's correct. What is the name of the bug? 
You can give me the scientific name for extra credit, but I will accept just the the layman's name. Uh, Death's head. Death's Moth. head. Death's head moth is correct. Yeah. Um, wh what is the name of the island that the inmates at the VA hospital in Oneida, New York, get to go to one week per year? Wait, I mean, the 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 name of the island. I I mean, so you're saying the uh, so what she tells him that mm -hmm. he can do oh that yeah. it was like plum island that's correct um uh what is one of the three major centers for transsexual surgery according to dr Lecter, in the united states um johns hopkins johns hopkins is one of them can you name any any of the others university of minnesota and the columbus medical center nicely done um where does frederica bimmel hide her naughty pictures it's like in like a mini, like, like, like a chest thing, like a makeup kit, maybe. I'm not really sure what that thing is, but yeah. Nah, I, I'll give I'll give you like half credit for that. It's it's a music box. Okay. And finally, what is the pseudonym that James Gum gives to Clarice at the end of the movie? He says he's Jack Gordon. That's correct. So with a score of let's see. <laughs> Eight to three, Todd is the winner. Wow. Todd actually did pretty well in, the, in that trivia. He did. He did. I, I told Zach I had to watch it fairly early on in the week. So I, uh, well, I, I did too. And I watched it again this morning. But I, yeah, the that's thing, the thing yeah. is like, yeah, those, the list things, like I, I take note of those in my brain because I know those come up in our trivia. So <laughs> they didn't go by any movie theaters in this movie. So I couldn't, uh, couldn't yeah. tell you what they were watching, sadly. All right, well, let's talk about Silence of the Lambs. I, I'm the one that picked this one, and obviously, you know, I did wonderful on that. But uh, <laughs> it had been a little while since I watched it. But yeah, so this is the uh, the 1991 film starring uh, Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Clarice Starling, and Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Um, Clarice is the uh, is a FBI trainee who is uh, who ends up in the middle of this serial killer investigation and using the criminal mind Hannibal Lecter who is behind bars uh, to help her uh, profile and then hunt him down. Uh, th this is this is a great movie. It it's um, I, I really like these characters um, and and seeing them. Uh, I, I always thought it was kind. Of, it was. It's such an odd choice for being a best picture winner, and, and it, it's so it's so strange. And I guess that kind of threw me off the first time I saw it because I said, "Wait, that I'm watching a best picture winner. This is the type of movie I'm watching, really." And um, and I, I guess because of that, the first time I watched, it, I just it, it, it was hard to get into just because of that. But it, it it's so good. Uh, I will say though, and we've had this discussion before. That uh, as good as Silence of the Lambs is, I feel Red Dragon is is a better a better movie. It, it's definitely a better story. The story of Red Dragon and Will Graham is, and um, and the Tooth Fairy is by far a superior story to the story of Silence of the Lambs with Clarice and Buffalo Bill. Um, and and I love the movie version of it. it. I think it does a really good job. And I would prefer to watch that over Silence of the Lambs. And so it not being the top movie in the franchise uh, makes it hard for for me to be like, you know, this is the great, amazing masterpiece. But it's a great, amazing masterpiece at the same time. Uh, I think you've got 
some all-time great performances here from Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins, who both won Oscars for this. It's one of those. It's one of the few movies that won the Big Five at the Oscars. Um, it, it's it, it's it's a classic, a classic crime drama. That I, I mean, you could say that that a, a film like Silence of the Lambs kind of spawned all of the TV procedurals that that came from it, which. I mean, Clarice, I, I've, I don't know if you guys have been watching it, but I was too fascinated to pass it up. I've watched the first two episodes of Clarice and it, it's on CBS. And I think that's all you really need to know about what kind of movie it's going to be. It, it's it's oh. just another crime procedural in in the vein of, of CSI and NCIS and all that stuff where they're they're just solving cases. The difference is the main character is someone playing Clarice Starling. And it takes place immediately after the uh, the events of Silence of the Lambs. So, like, she's dealing with PTSD from ha- from having to kill Buffalo Bill, and and so the, these little snippets keep popping up and of reminding you, hey, hey, this is this is the old uh, the, the, this is the story you know, this is the story you know, but we're telling it a little differently. Uh, it's good to see Michael Cudlitz in something. Um, Bull Randleman, he he plays his, uh, her boss, the the lead on their. Uh, on their FBI team. But uh, anyways, so I, that was a little tangent, but I, I wanted to mention it at some point, but yeah, sounds lambs is, is, uh, is definitely a masterpiece. Uh, Todd, what's your, uh, what's your experience with sounds lambs? Uh, I mean, I guess a lot of it's similar to you. Like, I mean, I, I also think red dragons, a superior story and which is why I like the, the TV show Hannibal, I think is one of the great TV shows of the last like 10 years. And because it focused on Will Graham, who is a, far more fascinating character than Clarice and I, I did watch the first two episodes of Clarice and I don't think I'm going to really continue honestly it, it really is just another one of those shows that's on CBS when like Hannibal I was slow to actually get to start it too because it was on NBC which is even worse at producing good drama TV but I mean it, it's it's super dark and super violent and Hannibal is a great show and it has our boy Mods Mickelson um, but uh, Sounds of the Lambs I, I've always I've always liked it I've, I loved Red Dragon like it's uh, I, I just, I mean, I love the saga really. And Hannibal is a fascinating character. And I, I mean, I agree with you about uh, Sounds of Lambs at the Oscars because it's, it's a genre movie and genre movies don't win best picture. Like it wasn't since like I guess Annie Hall, that's something that wasn't like the traditional drama or inspirational or epic war thing, won best picture. And it wasn't until again, the departed that that happened again. Where, I mean, so this is like one of the few, like maybe one every 15 years kind of thing that that wins Best Picture because it's just so damn good at what it does. And I mean, and that really is just a testament to every, like all the filmmakers and actors. And it, it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a really tight movie too. It's not, it doesn't ever drag. And I, I've always loved the movie and I, I think my appreciation for it has just gone up over the years. And on top of that, it was a February release. I mean, it, it would be like Judas and the Black Messiah winning Best Picture at next year's Oscars. Yet it's competing for this one. It, it's just insane. Didn't that happen with like Gladiator too, or Braveheart? One of those. One of those was like a February. They, they were like May. I don't think it was February. Okay. Zach, what, what's your experience with Silence of the Lambs? So uh, I remember watching a scene, a scene from Silence of the Lambs when I was like five or six years old on TV. It was a scene where the camera is going through Buffalo Bill's like lair in the basement and he's sitting you know, naked writing down something and we go to the well. That freaked me out as a kid, but I was very intrigued by it. I wanted to see it. And uh, many years later, I did see it. 
Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Remember going to see Hannibal in the movie theater right around the same time as I saw Silence of the Lambs for the first time? And like that is a that that was a seminal moment for me, realizing that there are really great movies out there, and then there are really terrible pieces of shit movies out there. Like movie, the, yeah, well, and and the movie Hannibal. In all fairness, because we do know that really Scott has made good movies, and his movie, you. Uh, you know, two years after Hannibal was a great movie. But uh, yeah. I agree, Terry, that Red Dragon has a very good story. It is not anywhere close to the movie that Silence of the Lambs is. And in particular, I recently rewatched Red Dragon. Something that annoys me about that movie is um, Anthony Hopkins is a ham in that movie. He is not a ham in this movie. Okay, this movie is a great performance of subtlety and just um, sinister looking straight into the camera, which was always Jonathan Demme's trademark. And that is what absolutely chills you out in this movie. It's not the violence and it's not the, you know, even the scene where he kills the guards. I mean, that's not like a, you know, conventionally scary scene or, or thrilling scene in any way. What's thrilling about it is just how calm he is and his demeanor throughout the movie. Um, it is a weird choice. Maybe we can talk about the 1991 Oscars. I think it's one of Jonathan Demme's best movies. And I think what's amazing about it is I can't, I can only think of one other movie that unifies both fan sort of populist sectors of movie audiences and academics. The fans and academics both love this movie. And there's only one other movie that I think is comparable in how they're, it's able to unify that love and that passion. And that is The Matrix. I can't think of any other movie, though, where it unifies audiences in that way, where you could actually go to a university and write an actual like discourse on the movie using, you know, uh, 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 you know uh, psychoanalytical analysis or whatever BS uh, they want to use, but also so like having the fan community totally behind the movie as well. So I, I think that's that's pretty impressive. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, it's a, so it has to be something that's like franchise sort of, but it also has to be super critically acclaimed and awards acclaimed and made a lot of money. So is, is that yeah. most, you have to check all those boxes? I th- I'm not necessarily the awards part, but like something that a university professor could give a lecture on and fans could also like have a watch party for. I can't think of two other uh, any other movies besides those two that would qualify for that. That's a fair point. Well, let's talk a little bit about the 91 Oscars. Um, yes. So like I said, this won the big five. Uh, it won it won picture, actor, actress, director and adapted screenplay. Uh, and it was nominated for two others that it didn't win. Do you guys know what they are? If you're not looking at it already, it has to be editing, editing, and sound. Oh. No cinematography. Which How is, is it not nominated for cinematography? That's ridiculous. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so Zach, you were the one that, that mentioned wanting to talk about. Uh, yes. This year, so go for it. So okay. Well, first of all. I don't know if you guys have ever watched. So the 1990 Oscars, right, which came out right around the time that this movie was released, Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster presented the Oscars for Best Screenplay at that Oscars, both adapted and original. And it's really funny to watch because Billy Crystal says they're starring in a new movie together and apparently he plays a cannibal. Ooh, I just heard backstage he was at a food plate and suddenly John Goodman is missing. Where did he go? Like, (laughs) a terrible joke. Um, But yeah, so this movie comes out. It is on the heels of Orion collapsing as a studio. It's kind of interesting that Dances with Wolves, also an Orion movie, won in 1990. And then later, Blue Sky won uh, with Jessica Lange in 1994. Uh, But this is the last hurrah of Orion Studios. And at the Oscars that year, I think the wisdom was that you cannot give Best Picture to a Disney movie. 
otherwise, I think if we're living in the time we, we are today, everyone gives it to Beauty and the Beast. But I think there's resistance to giving it to a children's film. It needs to be more sophisticated. JFK was way too controversial to give it to. They didn't want to give it to Barbara Streisand because she wasn't nominated for director. And obviously, the Academy had a long-standing vendetta against her. And I don't know. I don't think Bugsy had quite the sexiness that any of those other movies had. So I think it was one of those Oscars that at the time was sort of by default go to the movie that had a huge following. It was a movie that was shot for $19 million and grossed over $100 million. Everyone loved it at the box office. Anytime you watch those award shows in 1991, listen. When you watch Anthony Hopkins win Best Actor on YouTube, listen to the applause and the roar when they announce his name compared to you know Robert De Niro or who else, whoever else was nominated in the category. Like Fans loved that movie. They loved that role. And it was one of the times where you know the Academy just kind of placated fans. But it was the right pick. I mean, it was a great choice, and, and the movie has aged really well. Well, in a way, that could be similar to Parasite winning then, too, I guess. That's what I was yeah. thinking, is that yeah. it was kind of like a Parasite. Yeah. Was this a weak year at the Oscars? I mean, if you're if you're looking at those five and, and the way you described it, I mean, it, it was... It, well, Bugsy, I think, saying... I think Bugsy's a masterpiece, but I mean, it, it isn't one of those... I, I guess it doesn't have the, the ticks of like a normal biopic that would make it something that would be long-lasting, I guess. But I mean, that would be the traditional choice if if it was going with everything that had gone for the last ten years or so. Like Bugsy should have probably been the best picture winner. At least everything that I understand about the Oscars. I think Bugsy was overshadowed that year by movies like Silence of the Lambs, by JFK. It just kind of got lost, and I think you know I mean, it, it might have been gangster movie out too. Exactly. The, the previous year. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Goodfellas and Godfather Three the, the yeah. previous year. Um, and maybe maybe the it's one of those years where I mean, if Thelma and Louise gets nominated, does it win? I mean, it's possible. Thelma and Louise won screenplay that year, and obviously it was also a very critically lauded movie. But I think it was just it was one of those years where not having ten nominees I think really hurt the Oscars because you could definitely see Boys in the Hood sh should have gotten a nomination. Mm -hmm. John Singleton was nominated for best director, still the youngest person ever to be directed uh, nominated for best director. Um, yeah, and uh, Thelma and Louise should have also gotten a nomination, and um, maybe Cape Fear, maybe a few others. Terminator uh, Two. Sure. That that was. I mean, so I'm looking. We talked I mean, about cinematography. Yeah, cinematography, it was JFK 1. The other nominees were Bugsy, Prince of Tides, Thelma and Louise, and Terminator 2. Well, Terminator 2 won like four Oscars, right? So, yeah. I, mean, that, yeah. I mean, that could almost qualify in what Zach was talking about before. Like, because I mean, th that's something, th that's the kind of movie that's just, I don't know, it's like next level in its like technical and everything that you could probably teach a course on like what James Cameron does in that movie. Yeah, it, it pulled a Born Supremacy or uh, uh, Inception, whatever you want to call it. That that technical movie that wins a, that wins every technical or Mad Max wins every technical award. But the Academy was still a little too highbrow to ever really consider it, um, you know, best picture worthy. I think Jodie Foster is kind of interesting. You know, she this is her set, her second Oscar in three years. Anointed kind of like the maybe the best one of the best actresses of her generation. This was the movie that she made right after The Accused. I feel like this performance has aged a little better than The Accused. I don't know how many people have seen The Accused, but like, um, you know, by, by that point, she was pretty hot shit. And Anthony Hopkins, 
I mean, it's hard to think about this, but like this was sort of a comeback role for him. Um, I read somewhere that he said that if this movie hadn't made any money or if people had, because there was a discussion about putting this movie direct to video because of, it was so, you know, such an unsettling subject matter. But he said that if this movie had done nothing for him, he just would have gone back to Great Britain and performed on stage and would have given up his film career because at that point he really wasn't making anything in movies anyway. Well, I mean, and it was... Uh, the the lack of success of Manhunter probably yeah. played into that too, where it's just like I don't know, is this really that viable? We got the director of you know, Married to the Mob, coming in to make this like crime, like drama big. I mean, it was released in February. It could have easily been shit. Yeah, I mean, that, that way this is kind of like this is kind of like Get Out winning because Get Out was kind of yeah. had a similar profile released yeah, in February, and and just kind of the the cult classic fan favorite that rode all the way to Oscar success. But instead, I mean, this would have been like get out winning picture. Daniel Kaluuya wins best actor. Allison Williams wins best actress and Jordan Peele wins director and screenplay. Yeah. But I think like, you know, and this is true of a lot of like Oscar movies in the nineties and two thousands. Like it was a cultural moment. Like if you didn't see silence of the lambs, you, you weren't like staying relevant, you know, it was kind of like even like a, a comparison would be like American Beauty. Like when American Beauty came out, if you didn't see it, what are you doing? Like every, everyone needs to see American Beauty. Everyone's seen it. Go see it. You know, um, I feel like that was something that the Oscars were very much concerned with back in the 90s. Today, not so much anymore, but like they wanted to, uh, you know, give honors to the movies that really were in the kind of uh, popular consciousness of fans. And Bugsy was not. I mean, you know, and and I mean, JFK kind of was, but for the wrong reasons. Eh? So well, and they had just given Oliver Stone all sorts of love in the last five years before that. Yeah, but Oliver, Oliver Stone pissed off people. I mean, he pissed off Jack Valenny. You know, I once wrote an entire paper about how Jack Valenny wanted JFK to like not be released and how he had this huge grudge against uh, Oliver Stone. There's a great backstory to that. It's someone should make a podcast about it or something. But like JFK was way too controversial. Had it had it toned it down. Obviously, it wouldn't have been the movie it was, but I could have easily seen that being like the front picture or the the front runner for best picture that year. Okay, now to the Ebert's possibly the most popular debate about Silence of the Lambs at the ninety one Oscars. Should Anthony Hopkins have won lead actor or supporting actor? Supporting lead. Oh, <laughs> there's no way he's the lead. He's not the lead at any point in the movie. What are you talking about? First of all, his name is it's his name is second on the credits, and he's the you know okay screen time. What does screen time really mean? I mean, are we talking about with everyone loves to say oh he's on the screen for I think what twenty six minutes and fifty seconds or whatever? That's him on the screen. That doesn't count the scenes where he's on the phone and he's discussed by every single character in this movie extensively. So, I yeah he's I mean he's the reason why people want to see this movie. He's he's the star of it. I don't know if he's the reason why people went to see it. I mean, well, he's the, obviously the, the attraction once people had seen it. I mean, uh, that'd be like saying David Carradine is the, is, should have been best actor in Kill the Volume 2 because they talk about him for the whole movie. Like, I mean, he's not on screen very much. Like, like Anthony Hopkins has like five scenes. I don't think that's enough to make yourself a best actor contender. But they're lengthy scenes and they're important scenes in the movie. And he's at the beginning of the movie and he's at the end of the movie. And it's the heart of the movie is the relationship between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter. I mean, we'll get into flaws at some point, but people didn't go to this movie to see, to learn about Buffalo Bill. I mean, Terry even said like that part of the movie 
doesn't it resonates in some way because Buffalo Bill has become a cultural artifact since this movie came out. And there's certainly controversy about that character that I think we should talk about. But the heart of this movie is the the scenes between Lecter and Clarice. And I don't know, like, didn't David Niven have less screen time and separate tables? And well, like, I mean, there's always category yeah. fraud. But I, I mean, I honestly think I have him in my network is I, to, to me kind yeah. of comparable. Like, that, that's yeah, so I have him in supporting, too. I In my personal words, I have Anthony Hopkins as supporting. What do you think, Terry? I, I think I think it's really close. I, I, it's it's unlike really any other any other example. I like I don't think you can find anything else that really really fits like this. In that this movie really has two focuses, right? It, it there there's a hunt for Buffalo Bill, and then there is there is Hannibal Lecter, and and when he is at the heart of of the focus of half the movie. I can see why he is lead. Um, also, the fact that you're, I think also what played into it is you're dealing with, you're dealing with a franchise and this is the second movie made in this, in this franchise where he is the sustaining character that, that goes through the whole thing. I mean, you don't have a supporting character be the one that ties your franchise together. Frankie so, um, does apparently. Well, I'm, that's. <laughs> but I mean, well, he has even less screen time in in Manhunter than he does in Sounds of the Lambs. But I mean, I, I think what you're getting at is like the Last King of Scotland or something like that, where he's like, Forrest Whitaker is hardly in the movie at all, but like he dominates the movie when he's in it, and but he seems that overpowering over the movie because of that. Even and and because of that, they put James McAvoy in supporting for when he was campaigning for awards, which would be even more ridiculous because that would have meant that. Jodie Foster would have been supporting, but that's pretty much the dynamic that I feel here. And I don't think either are leads. And if and I, and I think the difference is in that case, James McAvoy was another guy, and they could say in this you had a lead actor and a lead actress, where in that they weren't going to say there were two co-leads. I mean, it's kind of similar to Training Day just last week. I thought Ethan Hawke was probably had more screen time in that movie, and Denzel Washington is the more menacing you know, um, the a scene stealing character in it, but the movies, you know, it, it, it's inseparable from Denzel Washington. Also, if you give supporting to Anthony Hopkins, we do not have the Jack Palance one arm pushups. I mean, <laughs> come on. Or potentially the, uh, the Tomei, like, whole career. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> exactly. Oh, how everything changes. If, if that one thing doesn't happen, if Marissa but Tomei doesn't win in 92, who wins? Who was supposed I to win? I don't remember. It's uh, four, it four British women. I can't remember any of them. It was supposed roles. to be what? Maybe the like, one from. Uh, let me look. The one from the Crying Game, maybe? I don't know. There wasn't no, no one from the Crying Game. Yeah, there was. Uh, the, other, the other ones nominated were Joan Plowright and Enchanted April, Judy Davis, Husband and Wives, um, Miranda her. Richardson and Damage, or Vanessa Redgrave, Howard's End. Oh. Yeah, it was supposed to be Miranda Richardson, I'm pretty sure. From what I've read, at least. I. I don't know. Or Judy, I think Judy Davis would have, I, well, I don't know. I mean, every, every supporting actress has won for Woody Allen movies, so she would have. But if, if he was in supporting, then who would have won Best Actor? It would have probably been Nick Nolte, I guess. No, I, I, De, Niro. Or, De Niro, I would think. Or De Niro, or Beatty for Bugsy. And, and no, the other I, one was Robin Williams in The Fisher King. I, I assume it would have been Nick Nolte. Like, he, he'd. Everyone loves loved Nick Nolte, and that was—I mean—it was the best picture nominee. He, no, they said he was miscast in that movie. The critics who, didn't like his accent. Who didn't? Who won the Golden Globe that year? 
Oh gosh, now you're making me actually deep dive this. Okay, let me look. Hold on. Golden Globes. Maybe it was Jack Allen's the lead actor. Yeah, it, yeah, to... Nick Nolte won the Golden Globe. Did he? I'm still getting there. That had, I mean, Sounds of the Lambs almost got shut out of Golden Globes, if I remember right. Uh, best actor comedy musical was Robin Williams for The Fisher King. And then, That's yeah, Nick Nolte. It is, it is. Jeff Bridges is the lead in that. Yeah, they, they screwed up categories all the time back then. <laughs> so... All right. Well, we're talking about we're talking about Anthony Hopkins. So let's move on into our next thing, which nice, is nice transition. Yeah, you, you like that? You <laughs> like that? Uh, Mount Rushmore of Anthony Hopkins performances. I think we can all say consensus. Uh, Silence of the Lambs is is on the Mount Rushmore. So we've got to pick others after that. Todd, you're first. What's what's on Mount Rushmore here? Uh, I'm going to go with The Lion in Winter because I think that's my favorite just, uh, I think it's my favorite like uh, royalty movie of all of all time and it, he absolutely dominates that movie when he's in the movie. Like he's, he's a supporting player but he is so larger than life and he it's like he, he's like he's living up to like his uh, Broadway career if he had a Broadway career. I don't know. He did plays in London but, uh, but he, he completely upstages Catherine um, Hepburn and Peter O'Toole in that movie. He's amazing. And I, I've always loved that movie. It's, I mean, it, it is easily my favorite royalty movie. And it's, because, it's pretty much because of him. Like, I think he gives one of the great sporting performances of all time. All right. The Lion in Winter. Oh, wait. There we go. All right. Okay. Uh, Zach. I've not seen The Lion in Winter, by the way. Uh, Zach, what is your pick? So I think that I should say Nixon. But the truth is, I haven't seen Nixon. I have seen the four and a half minute trailer from 1995 for Nixon, which that's was back in the day when they did four minute trailers. Like there was one for Titanic and a few other movies. That's a great trailer. Like his his performance seems awesome, even though he's not doing a straight on imitation of Nixon. He's he's pretty awesome. So can I say the Nixon trailer? Does that count? Um, it, okay, no. So an actual movie, I I would go with um, Hearts in Atlantis which is a shameless Zach movie from 2001 um, by the director of Shine, Scott Hicks. And it's based on a Stephen King novella. It's a movie that I don't think gets a lot of traction. It's sort of been forgotten, but it's like the polar opposite of, uh, of Hannibal Lecter. He plays this sweet old guy named Ted, and he is someone who um, has these superhuman abilities to like see things, and he can um, you know, uh, see what's going on um, in places around the world simultaneously. And so the FBI is kind of tracking him down. He develops this relationship, this sweet relationship with Anton Yelkin. I tell you, gr grisly old people with little kids I, it, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff you know do more of that Pete Davidson um, but anyway Hearts in Atlantis he's great in that movie and that's that's the other role that I really associate with him okay all right so we have Silence of the Lambs we have Lion in Winter we have Hearts in Atlantis so as I was looking at this I honestly don't think I have seen a single pre-Silence of the Lambs Anthony Hopkins performance. Or at least one I remember. There might be one in where it's like, oh, hey, he was in that. And then, and yeah. Um, so, so there. It cuts it down. To it like cuts it down quite a bit. Ones that you could choose from. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm looking at the list of what I have here. 
And I, I was thinking maybe going with, I mean, we, we haven't seen the father yet. And from everything I've heard, the father would be on this uh, from, from the, the reports of, of his performance in that. I thought about going with the two popes. He was very good in that. Um, one of the ones that's kind of a, a, a hidden gem in his filmography is the world's fastest Indian. Mm. Uh, that he's Agreed. really he's movie. really fascinating in that. But I'm gonna go with the remains of the day as my choice. Yeah. Um, which I think was the very next movie he did after Silence of the Lambs. No, Howard's and, End is next. Oh, Howard's End. Uh, anyway, one of the next two movies he did were I like exactly, is a much better movie too. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it remains of the day is much better than or than uh, Howard's End. Um, but uh, they're the exact opposite of Hannibal Lecter too. Uh, and and he he plays he is so subtle and subdued and um and it it is just this a, a fascinating movie and um I think it, that is a Merchant and Ivory movie right or or was just Howard's End Merchant Ivory okay yeah so uh my my picks remains of the day I will, with with honorable mention to World's Fastest Indian I will argue with you about Howard's End we 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 should have this Merchant Ivory debate man get all get all the viewers out there. <laughs> We're going to get some hits with that. I, I kind of love Howard's End. It's a much more ambitious movie, but he is great in Remains of the Day. I thought the miniseries of Howard's End was better, though. I don't it's, know. it's clumsily made at times, but the but the message is, I think, kind of, kind of more interesting. Um, Listen, I feel like Anthony Hopkins' career post-Silence of the Lambs became about the Anthony Hopkins persona as Hannibal Lecter, which is really unfortunate. So, like, you know, he does movies like Bad Company and fracture which fracture. actually isn't a bad it's not a bad movie but it's like it's so over the top and like his i don't know it's like when you watch silence of the lambs it's not anthony hopkins being anthony hopkins he's like giving a great performance instead of building it just convalescing to the persona you know what i mean like yeah. i don't know i the only one the other ones i had written down were the elephant man which i think he's amazing in and arguably i mean that that is one with two co-leads and he he should have been nominated as well and uh and Hitchcock because I I mean I, th I think he's a uh, great Hitchcock yeah I mean I can't there's nobody that could ever be cast as that role and look more like Alfred Hitchcock than Anthony Hopkins yeah I, I was also, have the gravitas of of Hitchcock too I was also gonna say Titus even though that's not really a performance esque movie like it's much more about the theatrical spectacle of the whole thing but he's really good in that movie too. All right, so we've got uh, Silence of the Lambs, uh, Lion in Winter, Hearts of Atlantis, Hearts in Atlantis, sorry, and Remains of the Day. So now we've got one more, um, one more Mount Rushmore to do here, and this is Jodie Foster's Mount Rushmore, and I think once again, consensus around Silence of the Lambs. So, if that's our consensus, what is, uh, what else are we picking? Uh, Zach, to you first. I think Terry should go first. I yeah, should go let's first. Go with Terry. I'll go first. Oh gosh, that mean you you're making me make decisions here. Um well, I if if I'm going first, I'm I'm going I'm going taxi driver. Uh I I think it this it has to be on there and if I'm going first and I'm taking the one that has to be there uh because it put her on the map. She gave a performance well beyond her years in in that in that movie. Um and uh, it it might be one of the greatest child performances of all time. I, I think it's safe to say that that's that that's the case, especially considering the content matter of of what her role was. 
Um, and I'm pretty sure I haven't seen a single Jodie Foster movie between Taxi Driver and Silence of the Lambs. So apparently the 80s in terms of Hopkins and Foster, I am completely blind. So uh, th- those are those like cornerstones. It's like she did Taxi Driver and she did Silence of the Lambs and is everything after that. So uh, so I'm going I'm going Taxi Driver. All right. Now we'll go to Zach. All right. My choice is Contact. Yep. I knew that. A, a movie I love. I think she's great in it. Um, it's a, I think it's actually a super high war performance. I, I couldn't, I can't really see anyone else in the nineties playing that role of Dr. Eleanor Arroway. I wrote down my conspiracy theories for silence of the lambs that young Clarice and young Eleanor Arroway have the exact same childhood. Their mother dies in childbirth and they're, then they love their father until he dies when they're 10 years old. And then they're sent to live with people they don't like. Um, but and they're also very much in a male-dominated uh, world. Ellie Arroway is a uh, uh, a scientist, a NASA scientist who eventually becomes an astronaut. Um, but she's incredible in that movie. Uh, really versatile um, and uh, yeah, it's just amazing. So I think her two best performances are Sons of the Lambs* and *Contact*. That's a terrible. I, I, I knew I knew that was that was coming. And I knew up. it was going to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. Uh, Todd, what, what's your pick to round out our Mount Rushmore here? I mean, I don't know. Zach was giving a shit for some reason, but I mean, I think the accused is one of like the great performances I've ever seen. I think it's her best performance for sure. And it was one of the best movies in 1990 or 88. And I, I don't know. I mean, that, that was the movie. She was what, like 23 or something when she made that movie that, that, that's like, that is some seriously dark stuff for that, that, uh, that, uh, young of an actress to be exploring and then i mean she, i mean she won the oscar for that and then obviously she parlayed that with her oscar and sounds of lambs but the accused is i mean that, that's what stands out to me whenever i think of jody foster yeah i mean what i wanted to go to if someone was actually going to take the easy one was carnage but i i mentioned that like every like other podcast and you guys still <laughs> haven't seen it <laughs> yeah the accused is a good movie I, I it's just i feel like that was a weak oscar year glenn close probably should have won or meryl should have won for the dingo eats my baby but like that was not a performance. That, that is the name people, of the movie. <laughs> it's not really a performance people remember today, but it is a good movie. Now it qualifies as an underrated performance and underrated movie. But I agree with you; she's really good in it. Yeah the uh, the only other two I had I had written down um, were I think she's she's pretty good in Panic Room. I had that written down, and. Uh, and another one I had written down more for how much I love the movie and less about her performance in it, and that's Inside Man. Right. I know. I know you didn't like the Brave one, right? No. I don't think Brave. I've ever seen that. No, I, I mean, she's I know, I know decent. I she's decent. Zach, I think you and I went and saw the Brave one in theaters together. Yeah, and it's a Todd movie, man. You should check it out. You you like? You know it. what? It is. It is a Todd movie. <laughs> Isn't that Neil Jordan? Yeah. Yeah, I like I said, a Todd seen, movie. <laughs> I don't think that makes it. I don't know any Neil Jordan movie I would consider a Todd movie. Yeah, it's like it's like Silence of the Lambs meets The Fisher King because she's like a radio host, just like Jeff Bridges was. But there's no Robin <laughs> Williams. Not character. bad. <laughs> yeah, okay. I, 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 yeah, I, I remember seeing it with you, Terry, and I think both of us were like, "Can we just get out of here? Like this movie kind of sucks." But yeah, I think yeah. I think you'd like it, Todd. That's a rousing endorsement. <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, usually when we both hate something, that usually means Todd loves it. So, 
it's been a while. I mean, what was that? Oh seven that we went and saw that. So yeah, it was pretty uh, bad. Todd, does uh, does Jodie Foster's performance in the Mauritanian uh, come close to even being considered? Well, no. I mean, I I kept considering or comparing it to Annette Bening in the report. I don't think that she's I don't think she's going to have a chance at a nomination for for it. And I I mean, honestly, she wasn't one of the standouts of that movie overall for me. So I it's sort of just like a name recognition Golden Globe nomination, I think. Sure. All right, well, uh, let's get into recasting this movie. So this was 30 years ago, uh, and so now we are going to recast it. And the funny thing is about trying to recast this is the fact that, I mean, we, we've we had another Hannibal. Uh, we now have another Clarice. Uh, I believe the we've last season... We've already had another of, Clarice, too, Julianne Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've had we've had several, several Clarices. Uh, I believe the last season of Hannibal had Buffalo Bill. Um... Or was there it? Was a, there was a Jack Crawford. Well, Buffalo Bills and or, Clarice, right? Or uh, he will be. He will be at some point. Willie, yeah, okay. And then, yeah. So I, I it's, it, it's weird recasting this because there's been so many people already recasting it. Uh, but we're gonna do it anyways. So let's start with let's start with Clarice, brought to us by Jodie Foster. Uh, Zach, we're gonna yeah, go to I'm, you first. I'm so proud of this pick. I, the other ones you can throw out, they're stupid. But this one I'm actually <laughs> proud of. So proud of it. I even texted you that I'm proud of it. Yeah. And I think I, this is the first time you've been proud of a recast. You're not gonna beat it. So just just bow down to it already. You ready for this? It's gonna blow your minds. Sheer Ronan. Tell me that that that's perfect, right? It's a perfect age, I mean, perfect demeanor, perfect mix of like innocence, but also ambition. Like Tell me, there's someone better than that. Yeah, that that's a good one. That's I mean, yeah, that, she would be on the first line of of competition. Yeah, that's that that's one. that's definitely the the vibe I was going for with mine too. Thank you, thank you, and good night. That's all I need. See, see you later. <laughs> Peace out. Mic drop. All right, I'll I'll go next. So so mine mine kind of on a similar on a similar wavelength. Search for might be better, but I went with Shailene Woodley. Um. Kind of same age, same same idea. Um, she needs a rebound, uh, and uh, I think she's shown she has the acting chops to pull something like this off. Um, and uh, so I could see it. So that's my pick. Yeah, mine might be a little too old, but we're on the same the same line. I went with Felicity Jones. I, I she might be about five years oh, old. Oh, okay. I mean, she. I mean, she even looks like Jodie Foster. I I thought that was kind of a an easy choice, kind of a cop out almost. Rebecca Breeds, the one that plays Clarice in the show, kind of looks like Felicity Jones. Yeah, yeah, I can it's like a that mix too. of like Felicity Jones and Olivia Cook. It's a good call. Anyways, anyways, okay. Uh, Doctor Hannibal Lecter, Zach, what do you got? Uh, this one was the hardest one. This is where my list falls off pretty dramatically. I don't really have anything good to offer here. I went with Alexander Sarsgaard. I think you got to go with someone vaguely European and menacing, but then why would you not cast Mads Mikkelsen? So the more I was thinking about it, let's just get crazy here. Let's just have fun with it. Let's get butts into seats and get people to watch the movie. And my pick would be Raymond Cruz, AKA Tuco Salamanca. <laughs> like, come on, man, you're not going to watch that movie. Him and Shirsha, I, I think they could light up the screen together. Okay, like that—that that is dynamite. I like it. Tight, 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 tight. 
If you're going Breaking Bad, why don't you just put Cranston in, in that role? Well, I thought about him too, actually, but I think he's a little old at this point. I don't think he's really that menacing in the way that Raymond Cruz is. And Raymond, Raymond Cruz, Cruz is pretty old too. He, and he, he needs to get out of Tuco. He's pretty old in Training Day. Yeah, well, that's also why I picked him is because I recently saw him in Training Day. I realized he was actually in things other than Breaking Bad, but we need more Raymond Cruz roles. So let's get him a starring role. All right. Well, uh, yeah, this one was tough because, yeah, you're going through and I, I like you said, uh, vaguely European. However, in my mind, it was like vaguely intellectual, which vaguely European intellectual. It kind of felt like it was the same thing. Um, but uh, I went. I was, so I thought Mads, but you can't pick Mads because yeah. he's already done it. And then I thought, like, what about someone like Michael Sheen? Well, Michael Sheen basically plays that role in the show Prodigal Son. So I can't couldn't do that. And then. What about someone like like James Spader? Well, James Spader basically plays that role in the blacklist, so you can't really go there. I mean, the, this this the concept of this role of the criminal behind bars that's helping fight crime is, has been done over and over and over again. Anyways, um, I, I've got I've got a safe pick and I've got an outside the box pick. My safe pick is is uh, Rufus Sewell. I feel like he's got like the menacing look that could pull it off. Uh, my outside the box pick, with, who has the total vibe, but it would it would be interesting is Peter Dinklage. Oh, that's I, I think, kind of brilliant, man. Yeah. Actually, I dig that a lot. I don't think you could have. I don't know. He's too small to be a cannibal, though. Yeah, you'd have to change the story, maybe. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, but, but I mean, if if that's you've definitely out of the box, I like it. I would go yeah, yeah. that movie for I sure. I mean, if you if you if you've seen him as Tyrion Lannister. You understand oh, how absolutely. he could be Hannibal Lecter very easily. <laughs> I bow down to that pick. That is, see, you got to get more out of the box, man. Stop doing the studio shit. Peter <laughs> Dinklage is a great pick. I love it. What? Fully on board. Thank you. Okay. Todd. Uh, well, the ultimately too old person is for the voice <laughs> alone is Willem Dafoe. Because, I mean, that's, it kind of seems almost too obvious. I mean, isn't uh, that Norman Osborn? <laughs> basically yeah or a lot of the roles he's played uh i also had written down andy circus and michael shannon both of which i could see i mean like just absolutely eating that role up they're yeah, not european necessarily but who cares <laughs> you think it'd be hammy yeah, i think both both of them would go over the top michael shannon i don't know i don't think michael oh. shannon goes over the top much I, at all. nocturnal animals are you kidding <laughs> he goes the shape of water everything he does is way over the top Way, wait, those are two movies. <laughs> well, those are the two that I can think of as Michael Shannon movies, so those are ones we're going with. Uh, I don't no, know, any, so, any circus, I, I think it. I mean, well, which one would you choose? You can't pick both. I mean, I'm, I I would lean with Michael Shannon, but you know, I never right. I never saw 99 Homes, but I feel like that's a more oh, subdued also, Michael no, 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 that's also way over the top, crazy okay. Yell, yelling on the phone, throwing dollar bills at people. Come on, no. Okay. Isn't he smoking cigars? <laughs> Going to show in a re open house real estate before closed home in Florida? Like, come on, man. The guy does not. He is between 10 and 100. Never anything less. Well, Anthony Hopkins is way over the top. Like, that's the whole reason why everyone loves him. In it. Red Dragon and Hannibal. Well, not I know. And it, it sounds like lambs. Like, that, that's the re Like, I remember seeing an interview where Jonathan Demi, like, well, after uh, Hopkins did the uh, Chianti line. He's like, that was so disgustingly over the top, but I love it. We're doing that. 
You know, I mean, because I mean, that's what he is. That's Hannibal. Yeah, I also heard that Demi had to tell him to stop doing that when the cameras had stopped rolling because he just kept doing it. And it got annoying, apparently. So it's not over the top, apparently. <laughs> See, uh, everything we keep talking about, Dinklage is the perfect one to do this. Peter Dinklage and Shearsha Ronan. That, that's all you need. There, that's the movie right there. All right. Dr. Chilton. Dr. Chilton, who brought to us by, what what was his name? It's coming up here. Um, Anthony Held. Hild. Hild. Zach. I went with the low-hanging fruit. I went with Christoph Waltz. I'm sorry. Had to. Too easy. Well, I kind of considered him for Hannibal. <laughs> yeah, that, that's possible. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I could see that. Just the dead stare he has. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, Dr. Chilton, I mean, he's got to be someone who, as soon as you see him, you instantly hate him. Um, and, uh, no one portrays that persona better than Josh Lucas. So that's who I want. Oh, but he's still, Josh <laughs> Lucas is way too good looking. I mean, Chilton is like kind of a disgusting looking dude, like no offense, but like, that's what he also that, has a lot of Nicolas Cage-esque tics. Right. Oh, th this is well, totally my answer for who would yeah. Nicolas Cage play. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Todd, who do you got? Uh, I mean, Shelton's way older than I actually thought he was, so I had to go somewhat older. I went, I mean, my two ones I wrote down were Charlie Sheen and James Spader, both of which I, I mean, I... Spader again, wow. I know, I was surprised Terry brought him up, but I mean, James Spader, I feel like, is a great one for that. But Charlie Sheen also, he, he could easily play that just despicable asshole. Yeah. I like Spader. He'd be a little more slimy than what about than what about the kid in the descendants who Robert Forrester wants to punch? Like, wouldn't that qualify for your definition, Terry? <sighs> Which Shailene I mean, Woodley? A reuniting. There we actors. go. There we go. Yeah. I mean that that's really what you, Maybe what you look for in a in a good Chilton is a a, a, a very punchable face. Um okay. Whoever played Ellis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoever played Ellis, yeah, he's still acting. Uh, all right, Jack Crawford, brought to us by Scott Glenn in this movie. Uh, brought to Fishburne us by show. Lawrence Fishburne in Hannibal. Brought to us by Harvey Keitel in Red Dragon. Brought to us by who played him in Hannibal in the movie? I don't even remember. I don't remember either. I'll look it up. Uh, Zach, who, uh, who do you got for, for Crawford? I mean, this one, you could cast a lot of people. I went yeah. with Stephen Merchant, who was the one menacing Nazi in uh, Jojo Rabbit. Um, but, you know, you could you could pick a lot of people. I don't know. I just went with someone who could be really straight-laced, but also, like, kind of banal and bureaucratic. You, you use that word menacing loosely if you say Stephen Merchant in Jojo Rabbit was menacing. Wasn't he, or, or did I pick the wrong actor? He was the one Nazi that... He like, was the one that came and searched, but yeah, I don't yeah. know if necessarily... Oh, I thought Consider he, him menacing. He was the only Nazi that I took seriously in that movie. Like the, the, the uh, others of them are all over the top. They should have been played by Michael Shannon. He's the wrong. one that walks in that walks in the room and and they have like the the two minute uh, back and forth Heil Hitler, where well, everyone has to say oh, it to yeah. each other. Yeah, but he's the well. Okay, I don't know. Whatever. Move on. Okay, I don't know if Jack Crawford is in the Hannibal movie. Doesn't look like he is. That's weird. I thought he 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 would have had to be. Anyways, maybe okay. he retired after after the Buffalo Bill case. I don't know. Yeah, this 
as as interesting as I think Scott Glenn is in this performance, this might be the most the the most replaceable performance. Um, and uh, I'm going with um, someone who I've gone with before in the in the recasting, just because I want to see him act a little more and get. And if he gets serious roles, he's really interesting, and that's David Schwimmer. Yeah, I could see it possible. Although I kind of disagree. I don't, I don't think it's that highly replaceable of a role. I think Scott Glenn brings a lot of interesting things to the role. But, uh, Absolutely. The ones I, yeah, that's fair. Ones I wrote down were uh, John Hawks and Mark Strong. Mark Strong probably being the, the better pick. But, I mean, John, John Hawks, I mean, that, that seems like a role that he... He's probably too old, actually. I don't know. I mean, maybe my cast is way too old. But maybe more, I'll just go with Mark Strong. I feel like Jack Crawford is at least six foot tall. I think John Hawks is a little sh- too short. Well, I looked it up. Stephen Merchant six seven. So <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, one more, and that is the one and only Buffalo Bill, Jamie Gum, uh, brought to us by Ted Levine. Zach, I'm also proud of this pick, although I think Terry might go with it too. I went with Paul Walter Hauser. He's come up in a lot of our deep dives <laughs> before, and I think he's got the voice and the intonation and um, the menace if we're going to use that word yet again, liberally, uh, to, to pull off Buffalo Bill. But uh, this is also kind of a role that you could put a lot of actors in and have a fun time imagining it. I think that's not a horrible pick. Yeah. What? I, what, what's I, wrong I agree with, that? with you could put a lot of actors in it. <laughs> but not Paul Walter Hauser, no. apparently? No. Why not? He's he's versatile. You think he's going to dance around nude? <laughs> yeah. No. And if no. you take it seriously? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm really I had to go with Jason was... Mewes because we already saw him do it. <laughs> in... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Let's> do. <laughs> All right. My pick, it, it was a first name that popped into my head as I was thinking about Buffalo Bill, and I couldn't get it out of my head as someone who just kind of goes for it in a ridiculous way, usually. And and also, as someone who you could easily see is kind of um, gender ambiguous, and that's Michael Pitt. Yeah, that's a good one. I've gone with him a few times in our recastings too. He's pretty he's pretty versatile. He doesn't work nearly enough. No. Uh so the ones I wrote down, I, I mean I had Paul Dano, but he I kind of did something similar in like prisoners. I so I went with Donald Gleason. Mm. I think that'd be just terrifying. That would be. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that would a be. good pick. I like it. Another very punchable face. Like he could have been Chilton. <laughs> If he was a little older. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's true. Maybe his dad could have played him. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. So I, I already said Nicolas Cage would play Chilton. Do you guys have any other thoughts on Nicolas Cage? I don't I mean, have it. Yeah. Like now he would have been the FBI director or something. But yeah, I mean, Chilton seems pretty obvious. Yeah. yeah, I don't have anything about Nicolas Cage, but I did want to add that the bug guys would be played by Adam Goldberg and Anthony Rapp in my recasting. <laughs> of course. Of course, of course. No, I, I think I think Nicolas Cage uh actually now would play um would replace Roger Corman as the FBI director. Mm. Possibly. Or they would ex- uh Clarice's father and extend some of those scenes out a little more. Oh, there we go. There we go. All right. Highest war performance, Todd. Well, I mean, honestly, okay, I'll just go with Scott Glenn because I think he's the most underrated part of the movie because 
he has this aura about him that you can't really tell if he's in on it or not. And that is a really rare tra trait to have. Cause like when you go through a movie and like one of the main guys that you're listening to for advice, kind of it, like if, if he, you can't really trust him. And that's because Scott Glenn has that look. He's just like, he's really straight laced and buttoned up. But at the same time, you're just like, have this uneasiness about him. And ever since he first appears, like, I, I don't, I, I, you, you don't trust him necessarily. And I don't know, maybe that's just me, but I think Scott Glenn is uh, kind of a perfect performance in this movie. I'll, all right. I, I don't think he, he's the highest war, but I will say um, he is an underrated favorite part of the movie that I don't, that I was trying to find a way to talk about him. I think he's the best Jack Crawford out of all the Jack Crawfords. I, I looked it up. Manhunter Dennis Farina was Jack Ooh, Crawford. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a that's <laughs> a very that. different vibe. Um, the Miami Vice vibe. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with what you said. That there's something like hidden in the way Scott Glenn portrays Jack Crawford, and you don't really know quite what it is. And because of that, it's kind of brilliant. And uh, and I love his performance. At the same time, I think maybe because we've seen so many people play Jack Crawford, it w it, it's a very replaceable performance. So I don't know if Highest War is the right place to put him, but I love what he brings well, to it. He's not a minor character, so yeah, I had to bring it up somewhere. Yeah. yeah. All right, Zach. Uh, I, well, what's kind of funny is as much praise as we bestow on Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster, those roles are kind of replaceable in a way. I mean, we've seen great interpretations of Hannibal Lecter by Brian Cox and Mads Mikkelsen. And even though, you know, Julianne Moore is nowhere close to um, uh, Jodie Foster, I think it's interesting to think about a potential where Michelle Pfeiffer would have been cast as Clarice. I think she would have played the role really well, um, or Laura Dern or Meg Ryan, who were also in the running for the role. Um, therefore, my highest war performance, even though those are two, maybe the two best performances in the movie, my highest war goes to pretty clearly Ted Levine as uh, Buffalo Bill. Because, I mean, I had a hard time recasting him, obviously. I, it, it's hard to think of another actor who could have pulled it off in a realistic way. And um, it's, it's a, I think, a really challenging role that I don't think you, you couldn't get away with being a big star at the time to pull off a role like that. You needed to have some aura of mystery. And... Um, it, uh, yeah, it's it's a complex, weird performance that I think only a few actors could really pull off. <clears throat> I, I that that's a good call. I mean, he he's pretty he's pretty outstanding in that for mm -hmm. sure. And I think it kind of ruined the rest of his career. I mean, he's Buffalo Bill, right? He's Buffalo Bill in Heat. He's Buffalo Bill in Shutter Island. He's Buffalo Bill in all these other movies he made. Well, he was in The Fast and the Furious, but I mean that you really have to look underneath like his makeup and like glasses to really even see it. So I mean. Yeah, he he could he could never hide from that. Yeah, uh, I I went with Anthony Hopkins. I mean, uh, yes, we've seen him replaced, but he is so iconic in this performance. And I mean, and and the fact that that we couldn't come up with it's like, well, it could be this guy, but that doesn't really fit. Or I mean, the only reason we would even consider Mods Mickelson is because we saw him actually do it. Um, and, uh, I, I remember when we heard Mods Mickelson was going to be Hannibal, we went, what? That doesn't make any sense because nobody can, nobody else can be Hannibal the cannibal. It's, it's Anthony Hopkins. It, it is the perfect casting and it's the perfect actor. So that, that had to be my highest war. Yeah. It's, All right. Yeah. 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 So flip side, Zach, worst performance. 
Okay, the worst performance for me, um, and there actually are a few bad performances in this movie. Um, I think you could even make a case for Scott Glenn as sort of a bad performance, but I won't I won't press that too much because I actually I see your points. Um, I went with uh, Danny Durst as Sergeant Tate, um, who is in the scene where Hannibal um, is able to escape. Uh, it's just really like broad, bland, you know, early 90s cop movie acting where he says, oh, God, and he has this really bad southern accent. And then he tells one of his other officers, it's Jim Pembry. Now talk to him, damn it. You know, when the guy's like paralyzed and it's just like it draws negative attention and negative energy on a character that has no significance in the story. And I'm not sure why they even gave him that much screen time. So um, it's just sort of a perplexing, really bad performance from bad 90s movies that doesn't really belong in a movie this good. So uh, the one I went with is uh, is Tracy Walter as Lamar, who is the. Uh... I think he's like the detective or the medical examiner or something in when in the room where they um, where Clarice is uh, examining the dead body. Um, uh, I, I don't know. He doesn't really have much to do. But the main reason I picked him is because on my Blu-ray of Silence of the Lambs, they have a blooper reel. And it's not very long, but literally half of the blooper reel oh, is watching like putting him on the gloves. <laughs> watching him try and put on his glove and he can't do it. So <laughs> I saw that too. <laughs> so for lack of anything better, I went with him as my worst performance because of his inability to put on gloves as, you know, a medical examiner. <laughs> yeah, I agree. That is a good call. Todd, what I do you got? I went with Brooke Smith. I think she's terrible. Like, I mean, she's whiny. It's like this. She, I mean, it doesn't. She doesn't need to be that bad either. She doesn't need to be that loud and whiny uh, as you know, Catherine Martin. I don't know. I mean, everybody else in the movie is so over the top. She, she comes off as just annoying because of how screamy and over the top she is. Like Brooke Smith is terrible in this movie. I always thought she was. Yeah, Brooke Smith just did an interview um, about the 30-year anniversary of this movie, and that's also a performance that it kind of was the best thing for her career, and it was the worst thing. She was always known as the girl that got kidnapped by Buffalo Bill, and um, I don't know. I mean, she was in a few other things like Vanya on 42nd Street and Grey's Anatomy, but um, I, I would agree with some of Todd's points, but I feel like that's maybe more just the nature of the screenplay. I think any actress kind of would have taken it in that direction. I don't think there's a whole lot you could do with it. I don't know, but she, t I mean, it's almost like Shelley Duvall in The Shining or something like that. I mean, it, it's that level of just like, come on, shut up. Well, she's kind of a one-dimensional character, too. Like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's true. Another one I almost went with was uh, Chuck Aber as Agent Terry, because it totally, totally took me out of the, the watching experience this time, knowing that a member of the Land of Make-Believe from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is in Silence of the Lambs as an FBI agent looking at a dead naked body. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I had a similar experience. I was thinking of putting Chris Isaac on my list of worst performances because he's in the credit sequence. Like every character who has a line in this movie is in the opening credit sequence. And yet I could not find Chris Isaac anywhere. <laughs> like this is this is like the Anthony Rapp uh, performance in the movie we were talking about a few weeks ago. Like where is he in this movie? I can't find him. Yeah. There was something okay. else that was like in the movie that I didn't, I don't know. I, I saw him earlier today. Hold on. I guess you keep going. I'll While he's up. looking for that, Amazing Larry Big Tim High Roller, minor character of the film award. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, as soon as I, I, I saw I saw them, 
I knew my favorite minor characters were Roden and Pilcher, the uh, the bug guys. Yeah, the, they were they're amazing, and and just the, yeah. Wait, we're actually a part of the case. <laughs> this is awesome. And they, and they get invited <laughs> to the party at Quantico afterwards with that big cake. Like that's yeah, awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Did they really and, do that much? Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. They, they discovered they the skull on the on the moth. I guess so. They they had to be they had to be a part of it. No, uh, right right around as I was watching this. So if you listen to the the new daily notes, which should be out by the time you listen to this. I reviewed 21 and 22 Jump Street, which I'd seen for the very first time. Roden and Pilcher in this remind me of the science nerds that uh, Channing Tatum gets into, gets in with at in 21 Jump Street. And so oh, I yeah. guess, I, yeah, I, I saw the comparison there and, and that was part of it too. But yeah, no, they were awesome. <laughs> All right, uh, Zach, what do you got? All right, well, from the movie, I would have gone with either Barney, who does appear in the other movies, um, or uh, the owner of Yourself uh, a Storage. But I did find myself looking at the extra features of, of this, and one of the extra features on my super old Criterion DVD, which I'm embarrassed to say I own, I should own the Blu-ray, um, is uh, Jim Roche as Brother Jim, who is uh, who he hosts the, um, uh, the gospel TV series that Dr. Chilton forces uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter to watch as punishment, as torture. And on the DVD of the old Criterion, and um, they actually have like a 10 minute thing that they filmed with brother Jim giving his gospel. It's very tappy Tibbins. I mean, it's like hilarious. They have the phone number beneath it and I, they sh he should be saying juice by shit, Sarah, juice by Sarah, but he's not. Um, I, that character probably deserves some, um, you know, spider verse adaptation in a, a another movie, but um, he's nice. great. I love it. I love it. Todd. Did okay, well, well, yeah, it was uh, George A. Romero is in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> FBI agent in Memphis is what he is uh, credited as, which I, yeah, never, I would have never known that. Uh, but the, my favorite minor character is George Red Schwartz as Mr. Lang's driver, because when they show up at, you know, the yourself storage, like, the, he won't even get out of the car to help them open the door because he hates, or he, what did he say, he detests physical labor. And that is a kind of that's kind of driver I want. He's not even going to leave his his steering wheel because he he will not even help you open a door. That guy's awesome. You see him for like a half a second, but his his, his the guy he's driving around looks like he just walked out of a carnival. But you know, I like <laughs> the driver. All right, all right. Now next category, Todd. We had a conversation about this already, yes. so um, I, I'm going to you first. Biggest stick man. Okay. This, uh, of all the movies we've done a deep dive of, there has never been a harder category to come up with a stick man. There is not a single one that you could even kind of speculate on who is a stick man in this movie. I, I mean, I mean, the one I wrote down as like, maybe I could kind of make an argument because in the in Hannibal, he's played by Ray Liotta is, Attorney General Paul Krendler, uh, because there's a possibility that maybe him and Senator Martin are having an affair. But Ooh, that's it. That is the only thing I could come up with. There is nobody that is a stickman in this movie. They are anti-stickman. <laughs> Every character. <laughs> I disagree. Okay, Zach, who do you have then? 
There is one character who has epic performance, shall we say. Um, maybe not so much in the endurance category, but, but in the volume category. And that is multiple MIGs. I mean, he shows up. He is never getting in. He is well, stuck We don't in know that. The cell. <laughs> okay, admittedly, you're right. This is not, you know, this is not really a who's who of stickman. But if we're talking about performance... There is no performance anxiety with multiple MIGs. He shows up. He is not like LeBron at the, you know, in the middle of February. Okay. He is showing up to the game and performing at his all-star level. I think that deserves some props. And I think that puts him in the stick men spectrum. What did they say? Eight years that they hadn't seen a woman? I mean, there's no, there's there's no talent in that. I think, look, I mean, consider the last 30 minutes of Boogie Nights, okay? Like, Dirk loses some points because he can't get it up. Multiple MIGs gain some points for the exact opposite reason. That's my argument. <laughs> I think you just proved my point. Terry, do you have anything? <laughs> well, uh, first off, Todd, since you've watched Clarice, in, in Clarice, Senator Martin is the Attorney General at that point, right? I I don't even know if I realize that. I, th- I think that's what they said. Anyways, uh, she's still a senator after all these years. Well, no, it, it, it no, takes yeah, place right. immediately oh, after. Right after. Lives. Okay, yeah. I see what you're saying. Um, which makes me wonder if Ray Liotta plays that character in Hannibal. Does this take place? Does that take place after the events of Hannibal? I don't. Know. Anyways, uh, the one I wrote down was actually Mr. Lang's driver as the sick man because you know <laughs> he, he's he's a pretty great driver and. Uh, yeah, I mean that's as, that's as far as we're gonna have to stretch it to get yeah. come up with anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was the thinnest, Terrible. like the slimmest pickings we've had of any stickman category. That we've <laughs> yeah. Here. All right, Todd, Billy Bats douchebag. Okay, so I mean, there's some obvious ones, but the ones I'm I'm gonna go with the uh, fellow cadets who are running past Clarice and Andrelia when they're training, who just like look back and check up, check them out, like they're like some frat boy assholes. Like you're you're in, you're trying to you're trying out for the FBI, basically. Like what do I mean? What are you doing? They're they're like wearing like the head to toe in sweats too. Like what are you checking out? Like those, those people like. Adam and I had this conversation on our uh, daily notes that like frat boys are like by like by default do the biggest douchebags and that's what those guys act like. That's sound logic. I think it's really funny watching that scene where Jodie Foster. I don't know if this is the same scene, but like the scene where they're running and talking about how you know, like Ordelia is like giving her, "What do you do in this situation?" She's like, uh, "You know, breaking and entering and do this and that." I'm reminded of the scene in The Departed when Leo and Anthony Anderson are doing the exact same thing, but they're talking about, um, you know, like doing his mother or something like that. Like it's 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 not remotely about you know actually do, talking about training or anything like that. That's a good call. All right, Zach, who do you have? Uh, my biggest douchebag, I mean, uh, I also thought about the driver. I mean, I, he's more of a douche than he is. I, I don't know how you could call him a stick man. I, he's been in like every category here, which is strange <laughs> considering he has about three seconds of screen time. We don't even know his name or face or see his voice. So maybe that does make him the ultimate minor character. Um, I thought also about, I think Jack Crawford definitely qualifies as a douchebag in this movie. I mean, he's constantly undermining Clarice. He ta- pulls her out of the room at the coroner um, because he doesn't think uh, she can handle it. And then, of course, 
course, the whole offer is phony that he proposes to Lecter, and that and Clarice doesn't know about that. And she then there's that weird part where she talks about try, trying to go to the Justice Department and have them having them oversee it. In other words, I think Jack Crawford's a little bit of a, of a scuzz and a douchebag, um, and uh, I think he mistreats Clarice quite a bit in this movie. Well, see, but okay, I'm sure you read that he was originally supposed to be Gene Hackman, yeah, which would have been fascinating, but it would have been a completely different character. Well, like that's way more like overpowering, but so Scott this is sort of, interplays it. This is sort of conspiracy theory, but Gene Hackman uh, owned the rights to the movie, wanted to do it, but only he, if he could play Jack Crawford, which tells you everything you need to know about Gene Hackman and the movie that he would have made. But his daughter apparently thought that the material was too dark, so. He passed on it. Thank goodness. Gene Hackman's daughter and solid MVP candidate for this movie. <laughs> okay, so Todd, I think you were wrong about Paul Krendler. I don't think he was Attorney General because that's who Michael Cudlitz plays in the Clarice TV show. I think he's he's like one of the FBI guys. He just he has to be um... if that's who Michael Cudlitz plays. Maybe he becomes that. I don't know. Maybe he comes out after this movie. Maybe. Uh, that's what he was listed at when uh, the thing I was looking at. Okay. I Anyways, know. I mean, all right. So my douchebag. assistant attorney general. Okay, whatever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the only option for douchebag for me is Chilton. I mean, th this, this goes down on like one of the greatest douchebags of all time. Uh, just looking at him at any point. It, yeah. Like I said, very punchable face. So uh, yeah, but so he, he's my douchebag. Forcing Hannibal to watch the televangelist, though, is kind of evil genius. That's why I couldn't quite call him a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a level of evil, evil genius that's beyond douchebag. He's, he's like he's the next level. Him while he was laying on his bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he's taunting him laying on his bed. He is he make sure is the hitting on know Clarice. Name. Yeah, hitting on Clarice, and then uh, oh, and then what what was it when like. Clarice is going is going in, and she she mentions something. It's like I, I've I've got I've got it, and he's like, "Well, then you could have saved me the time. I didn't have to follow you down here." Then, like, dude. Yeah, but his what interactions else with are you doing? His interactions trying... with Clarice are no worse than the bug guy who asks her for burgers and beer. I mean, that's just kind of garden <laughs> variety douchiness. Yeah, but but Chilton thinks he actually you know is important. The bug guys are, are doing that out of their lack of importance. But Ch Chilton's powerless, and he gets his comeuppance at the end of the movie. Like, Crawford is someone who I think um, sort of, you know, he has this power over people. And oh, I agree that I agree that Crawford is a is a decent douchebag, but but Chilton is like is like Mount Rushmore douchebag. Oh, I don't know about that. I think you might have had him on your biggest douchebags list. I think I might have. Well, I, I, I think I said it on the last last uh, podcast too when I was talking about the uh, reporter from Die Hard that they, yeah. they belong in their own category of rat fink that, <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that's a good description of them okay best scene best scene from this movie um, Todd well it was kind of mentioned earlier but I think my favorite scene is when the tracking shot that's leading up to the first time that we see Buffalo Bill in his lair because that, that, that just shows his entire little setup and like it shows how disgusting and weird everything is there. And it just is deeply unsettling. And then you it ends with showing him sitting there like naked in his chair. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a brilliant tracking shot. 
That's a good call. Zach? I mean, really? This is like when Charles Barkley picked AI instead of Michael Jordan for the best scene. Like, you're not going to pick the scene with Clarice and Hannibal at the beginning of the movie? Like, that is maybe the greatest scene in movie history. In one of them. I, I don't even, I don't have anything to add about that scene. It's like cinematic perfection. You can watch that scene on repeat over and over again. It's never boring. It's fantastic. The movie, the movie climaxes at that part after 10 minutes in. It's remarkable that it's able to sustain itself for the next hour and 50 minutes. It's Mids the multiple climax, mids yeah. of movies. <laughs> I was going to say, the movie's not the only thing that climaxes at that moment. Um, <laughs> There's also remaining gold member. <laughs> um, that, that's oh, true. Oh. It was. I forgot about that. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the moment when, when uh, you first see Hannibal just standing just standing at attention in his cell waiting. It's, it's just unsettling. Uh, I mean, I, I knew that that was going to come up. At least I hoped it was going to come up. Well, that, that was the scene that I was thinking that most uh, gave you credit for Peter Dinklage. Cause that, that is like, or that shot is the one that like, that gets you Peter Dinklage, like just standing there like that. That'd be the creepiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Would he be on a chair though? <laughs> My- It'd be dark. <laughs> well, and, and yeah, that that would be creepy. But I, also, I think as soon as he would open his mouth and start talking, I, I think I think he is one of the only actors I think that could perform those lines that this in at the with the same gravitas as, as Anthony Hopkins. Anyways, my my best scene. I I literally just said anytime Lecter's on screen. I I knew that scene was going to come up, but I think the scene where he beats the guard to death also is just brilliant in in. You know it's coming, and then you you see him hitting him, and knowing that he um, what it said earlier in the film that he does all this, and his heartbeat never rises. Like like this is at no point does he get thrills in this. It's just his standard operating procedure. Uh, it is it is chilling to just see that moment there too. So I that that's an, another one. But yeah, whenever he's on screen, it's it's must watch filmmaking yeah when he beats the guard it's like the exact shot the exact same way as when in hitchcock when he's uh showing them how to do the shower scene like the the exact same motions and everything i mean i i mean it was almost like disturbing to watch it the last time i the last this this time watching the movie i was like oh shit that's like the exact same thing all right any flaws anything outdated any conspiracy theories uh, Zach, I'll go to you first. Yeah, um, I think this movie suffers overall a little bit. It does have that 1980s cop movie, Miami Vice, almost aesthetic at times. It's a little over the top, a little in your face, which is surprising considering that Demi was usually a director who was a little bit more restrained. But, um, you know, the, the music is a little loud at times. We, we get it. We don't need those accents. But I think that's more product of its times than anything else. Um, I don't like how the movie cheats a little bit with the end sequence, the fact that, oh, the cops are in Culver City, uh, Illinois, and they're going to get Buffalo Bill. But, oh, wait, we actually just fooled you. It was really at the, you know, the house in Bel- Belvedere the whole That's time. I think moment. that was a little, I, it's a little cheesy. That's all I'm saying. Um, I also don't understand how the bug was uh, gr- only grown in Asia, according to that one guy, but then it was flown in from Suriname, which the last I saw was a country in South America. And I also have a hard time... 
um, I also have a hard time really believing that uh, Hannibal Lecter, how could, how could he cause multiple MiGs to kill himself? I mean, if he's that crazy, how would MiGs have enough wherewithal to actually go through the act of killing himself and then swallowing his tongue? It just it, it that part to me is a screenwriter saying we need to make uh, Lecter more menacing, so we're going to throw in this detail that is unrealistic and just sort of takes away from the movie. Well, even the FBI guys in the what the behavioral science department are like, don't let him get in your head. <laughs> you know, like they they play that off off screen so that you, they don't have to come up with a way to show it on screen. I guess. Yeah, and then I guess one more thing I wanted to add. Is Buffalo Buffalo Bill is is really that great of a serial killer? I mean, is he really like? Come on, he's he's not. I don't think he's particularly polished in his skills. It feels like more that the FBI is not particularly intelligent about him, and less so that he's this diabolical genius. But I don't know. Watching again, it again, I was again the Tooth Fairy is greater than Buffalo yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Fair. Um, and then. Uh, Oh, what was I going to say? I completely forgot what I was going to say. Something off of what you said before, but maybe I'll remember it. Todd, what do you got? Uh, so a flaw is uh, Zach actually gave me a, his copy of the Criterion DVD, and it has the wrong release d year on it. It says 1990. If you can read that, it does. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that makes Zach the LVP or Criterion, but that's pretty lazy. That that DVD was put out in 1998, so the fact that it doesn't know the release here is pretty bad. Um, the wine's think... still good, though. The Criterion wine is is top notch. Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's a little hard to believe that Lecter was not was going to get away by wearing someone else's face. It wasn't exactly face-off level technology that he was dealing with. He didn't have very much time, and plus, Lecter is way bigger than Pembry like that. I mean, it's just, I don't understand how, how bad those, those cops must have been. I also think it might be the most outside the box costume design that Colleen Atwood ever did. Like, I mean, I think the costumes are pretty great, but she doesn't ever does uh, contemporary costumes. And, uh, but my conspiracy theory is this, if you break it down to its bare bones, this movie has the exact same plot as another movie that we've deep dived, done a deep dive of, or I don't know how you still don't know how you say that. So this is about, the FBI recruiting someone to lead who has no business out working out in the field. The person needs the help of an expert villain who has useful knowledge of things that are going to help that per or help her or him in taking out a more serious and pertinent villain. And that person gets inside the head of the main character, manipulates that person, and then is successful in achieving the goal. And then they escape. This is the exact same plot as the rock. <laughs> the exact same plot. <laughs> What's interesting because Connery was the first choice to play Hannibal Lecter, and that would have been that would have been a mistake on so many levels, you know. You know, I liked it. I ate his liver with some fava beans and nice Chianti. <laughs> I think it would have. I think it would have been more like Finding Forrester, Sean Connery, like you know, like um, prove me with your acumen, dog, like something like that, you know. Would it would have been bad? She'd walk in. Had to bring Nicholas Cage back into the conversation. Uh, I'm Cl I'm Clarice Starling, but of course you are. Exactly. <laughs> 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 oh man, that's that's really funny. Okay, 
I, I didn't really have anything. I just want to hear what you guys had to say. All right, let's wrap this up. LVP, MVP. Um, I'll go first. Uh, my LVP is uh, all of the uh, crime procedurals that have been inspired by the Science of the Lambs that progressively get worse and worse. Uh, some of them have been pretty good, but uh, my, my other LVP was lotion. Just in lotion. I don't think I need to expand yeah. on that anymore. My MVP, though, uh, is is Jack Crawford because he had the forethought to take someone like Clarice out of training and put her into this situation because he saw the the potential in her before she was even a real agent and said, this is who I need to actually crack this case and, and put her into the situation. And I th I think Jack Crawford's like borderline genius in how he was able to to play Hannibal in this way and know, knew that he could do it with Clarice. And so he's the MVP of this movie. That's a terrible pick. I like it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, Zach, you go next. So my MVP of the movie is uh, Jonathan Demme. Um, in the hands of a lesser director, this would have been just another routine slasher movie, the type of movie that Terry was talking about that came later in the 90s, movies like Copycat, Seven. I mean, those were good examples, but there were many, many bad examples, too. Um, and I think Demi just elevates this movie in so many ways. My LVP of this movie is, um, well, the Criterion DVD, because it is shit. I mean, I watched it, and uh, yikes. But that's more on me. I should get the Blu-ray. My real LVP of this movie, though, is all of the like creators out there on like TikTok who use the Buffalo Bill uh, dance as this very transphobic sort of um, cultural paradigm. And like the movie is controversial because of its depiction of a trans character. But I feel like... The Buffalo Bill character they make very clear is someone who um, is confused and is not, uh, you know, they say that uh, tra transgender people in this movie are, uh, transgender people are passive. They're not naturally sadistic like the Buffalo Bill character. Um, and I feel like this movie actually has a pretty good depiction in the sense that it's not like, you know, Eddie Redmayne going over the top, like, uh, in that one movie, the Danish girl, like, um, I feel like in that sense, this movie has aged actually fairly well. And Jonathan Demme was so concerned about it that he made Philadelphia, um, as his next movie, because he was so concerned about the, the idea that this movie was, uh, homophobic in any sort of way. So long story short, my, my LVP are all those TikTokers who redo the Buffalo Bill dance as a way of being transphobic which is not cool all right all right todd lvp mvp uh my lvp i mean the the guards cops agents that are protecting like there and also night vision goggles because they really <laughs> use them wrong and every time he gets shined in the face of the light it doesn't do anything so it just doesn't make any sense and i also have my mvp as jonathan demi because I mean, it's this movie should have been something that's more depressing, but it's not. It's actually lively while still being dark. Like Hannibal was all dark. Red Dragon's all entertainment. This movie is like a perfect blend. And I think that's because of Jonathan Demi. Yeah, I can't think of another director who won their Oscar for a movie that in a style that they never made ever again. Like Jonathan Demi, you know, Kevin Costner made other Westerns, right? Spielberg made more historical dramas. Demi never did like another thriller like this remotely ever. Maybe The Manchurian Candidate would be the closest, but his movies were all over the place and um, he's really hard to pin down as a director. It's also just a treat to watch this movie to see some of the actors that reappeared in his other movies. Like, like the preacher dude was also in like Rachel Getting Married, I saw. He was the guy that gave the toast and said, may your up and downs come only in the bedroom. And um, 
I love Jonathan Demi. He's a really underappreciated uh, filmmaker who deserves more more credit. Was that your quote of the day? Because if it was, that would have been brilliant. <laughs> that that can be my quote of the day. May your up and downs come only in the bedroom. Uh, all right. Well, it is time for quote of the day. Uh, so, uh, did you have another one, Zach? I'll go to you first. I did. I actually had one from Jonathan Demi. He said that your antagonist has to be every bit as formidable as your hero, or you diminish the character you're supposed to care about. For, for people starting out writing scripts, they're in the hiss at the villain mode, and you always want to say, wait, 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 they're human too. Give them some problems, and you'll end up with a better story. This was a movie that humanized its villain, so much so in a way that Hannibal Lecter actually comes across as somewhat, like, empathetic in this movie in a strange sort of way, almost heroic in a weird way. Um, and, and, you know, got the attention that really only Bond movies prior gave like villains and antagonists. So um, I, I like that. And, you know, it, that's the Hannibal is the reason this movie is as, as um, you know, famous as it is. All right. Good. Todd. Uh, my quote comes from the great poets of our time, James Hetfield and Lars Ulrich, who are the lead singer and drummers of Metallica. It's about nomads, uh, their song, Wherever I May Roam. It says, and the robe becomes my bride. I have stripped of all but pride. So in her I do confide, and she keeps me satisfied, gives me all I need. And the, with dust in throat I crave, only knowledge will I save. To the game you stay a slave. Rover, wanderer, nomad, vagabond, call me what you will, but I'll take my time anywhere. Feel free to speak my mind anywhere, and I'll redefine anywhere. Anywhere I roam, where I lay, my head is home. And that should have been played in Nomadland at some point. Or not. <laughs> Just to make it a little a little more into the wild-esque. Well, no, I guess that was that was uh that was Eddie Better. So yeah. Anyways. But it would have had a similar vibe, I'm sure. Okay. Well, well, my quote of the day comes from Silence of the Lambs. It's my favorite quote from Silence of the Lambs, and I'm saying it because we're bringing this podcast to a close. And for at least Todd and I, it's dinner time. Probably Zach, too. So I'm having an old friend for dinner. It's my favorite line. It is like it's like the greatest like like drop mic line in like movie history. It, it's we it's didn't even talk great. about what a great ending that is. I mean, that would be my second favorite scene in the movie. That ending is yeah. just about. Yeah, that that ending's amazing. I love it. And that and that line is just perfect like he says the line he drops the drops the phone he walks away and then the uncut shot throughout the entire closing credits oh i love as they roll. That. more movies need to do that yeah yeah all right well it's time to draw this podcast to a close thank you guys so much for listening uh make sure again that you subscribe rate review uh we'll be back at you next week with another podcast until then have fun watching movies, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.